A word to the wise, we are an explicit podcast tackling content with adult themes, as well as entering spoiler territory if you aren't caught up with us. This week, that would be through Chapter 4 of Pierce Brown's Lightbringer. Hey there, this is Cross. And I'm PJ, and I very nearly howled, as you said, Lightbringer. (laughs) (laughs) And we are Words and Whiskey, a podcast for veteran and novice readers alike. We tackle fiction novels and love to talk about what we're drinking. You should think of us as your intoxicating weekly book club. A return to form, Crossland. A return to form. What do you mean a return return to to form? form? We're back in the Red Rising universe. It's been a minute. It's true. We are arguably home. A lot of our <laughs> listeners would would agree that we are home now again for mm-hmm. the penultimate time, potentially. Yeah. But yeah, it is. Do you know? Do you know how we get back into the swing of things in the Red Rising, mm-hmm. the Red Rising universe? Hmm. Yeah, my my tongue is tied already. That's not a good sign. We take a shot of Reiki. Cheers! Cheers! Nice. Mm-hmm. It's so good. It is definitely a return to form in so many ways. And I am so excited to to be back. Not only did we have like a lovely time doing the Greenbone saga with mm-hmm. Thomas Ben and Aaron from Howler Pod and High Key Obsessed. You are tongue-tied. I am also tongue-tied. So this is a great <laughs> way to start off this episode. But it's also nice to return to form, not only the two of us, but also with our, you know, our original little book home series so all around it's nice so today is our first episode and we are going to be talking about chapters one through six of pierce brown's Lightbringer, part one circus but before you do that pj talk about our featured cocktail today i have kept this sequestered away from you a little bit i've shown you a picture of it i told you kind of what i was toying mm-hmm. with but uh, you haven't you haven't heard the cocktail yet so four ingredient equal part cocktail it is <laughs> mm-hmm. interesting. Fernet Bronca parts. Yep, equal parts. Fernet Bronca, green chartreuse, lime juice, and this weird mushroom coffee additive that Kaylin had. And this is the Dominus Portobello. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. How's it taste? It's actually really good. <laughs> I I was going to do lemon juice, but I didn't, I I had lime juice already like in liquid form and I didn't want to like, I was running out of time before our go time and didn't want to squeeze lemons, but I'm pleasantly surprised with how the lime turned out. The fernet and this mushroom stuff, I, I can tell you, I sent you a picture of the stuff, what's it called? But it's like a chaga, renewed, R E N U D E, chaga. Cicino, C-C-I-N-O. It's like something you add to your coffee or tea. Um, It's got a nice but subdued mushroom flavor, and I just mixed that. I did two ounces of that with an ounce and a half of hot water and and mixed it together, and it made a little syrup. So it's it's not sugar, but there's a sweetener in it, so it made a little bit of a syrup deep black color so it did kind of work okay yeah yeah it did mm. kind of work i was just crossing my fingers and seeing how it went but surprisingly 
like it's herby and like I've got two super herb forward spirits in here along with just a variety of blended mushroom powders and like genuinely pretty good. I think, I think it would work better as like a small, I, I did one and a half ounces of each just cause we're going to be talking for a while, I'm sure. But I think going like three quarters of an ounce each and then serving it up probably would be the better way to do it. Serve it almost like a martini. Interesting. Yeah. I, I really, I really dig it overall. So I love the presentation of it and i think the general idea i mean i'm not terribly shocked that it is overly or not overly but is so herby but what a what a good idea too to like mask that like mushroominess Mm -hmm. which is something that we were talking about because you you pitched just the idea of dominus portobello yeah Hmm. yeah and i mean two notoriously strong flavors coming together being the chartreuse and the fernet um kind of polarizing in a lot of ways uh but they actually blend together really well and i don't know if it's because the mushrooms there to back it up and that lime balances and rounds it out but yeah i i have no complaints i'm not gonna say that it's stellar I think it could go through some some fine tuning and some revisions, but for a first blind attempt, not bad. Yeah, not not bad at all. I think it's also a good experiment to try, like a powder or something like that. I'd be curious. Uh, the only thing that I had said, I didn't give any advice on this outside of make a mushroom syrup. And you were like, LOL, or Kaylin, your fiance, was like, fuck no. And I was like, <laughs> it's not it's not completely unheard of to make it like mushroom syrups are a thing at cocktail, like really nice cocktail bars. And like how to drink has made a couple of drinks with with mushroom syrups. Okay. So I yeah. had not heard it of that at work. all before. And in doing some research, I saw like a surge of mushroom cocktails that came out like three or four years ago. Online. Yeah. But Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, they they definitely exist. Like it's not completely out of out of pocket, mm-hmm. but it's not necessarily, you know, it's it's not something that you're going to use widely. So you would probably only make like 8 ounces or something like that and go through it in like 2 months, but yeah. Um yeah, it's interesting. Good mm-hmm. cocktail. Yeah. Following that up, I've just you got a little... Lining Kugel's Honey Vice cuz uh I don't nice. have much of anything in my fridge right now. I've got that and Blue Moon. So. Me neither, which is why my cocktail is not one out of complete desperation, but is one out of nigh desperation. <laughs> so it. I, I am having a Trinidad uh, port sour, which I could name something because this is not traditionally something that you would do. But for those of you who don't know, Trinidad sour is generally three quarter or one and three quarter ounces of Angostura bitters, a half ounce of rye, half ounce of simple syrup. And then lime, a half ounce of lime juice or three quarter ounce of lime juice shaken sometimes with an egg white to, you know, give it kind of the sour appearance. Although it does kind of do that on its own because the Ango bitters do have that sort of natural foaminess to them. Basically, what I did there is I subbed out the rye for port and added an ounce as opposed to a half ounce because obviously I knew that port needed a little bit more flavor to stand up against the herbaceous nature and everything else. And this is super tasty. I am not at all disappointed. I think it would work great. I think in general, I'm actually glad that I'm using the port for this because I found that that port is at the end of its life. So I need to get a new bottle. 
to to replace it and yeah but overall very pleased i would remake it with a little bit more lemon as well like maybe a tenth of an ounce more i mean if you're just sloppy measuring you could just go all the way up to the quarter and do a full ounce but the port is a very different flavor mm-hmm. against the rest of it and it does work it just needs a little bit of balance and fine tuning so i might come back with the magnificent chins beverage or something of the like <laughs> The Magnificent Chin is such a good name. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So this one's going to take one more round of refinement, I think, but I'll come back next week and I'll name it properly. But yeah, Trinidad Port. I don't have a back half, but this is very boozy as is, so I'm not concerned. <laughs> Sounds good. <laughs> and I've got some tea. But yeah, because my fridge is also empty and I haven't made a run to the, the liquor store as of yet. All right. But before we go too much further here or talk about the chapters, PJ, how does it feel to be back in the Red Rising universe? Unsettlingly cozy. (laughs) (laughs) You got to explain that a little bit more. (laughs) I mean, there's not like we're not jumping into a good situation with our protagonist here. It, Mm -hmm. It doesn't feel great, but it feels very good to inhabit his perspective once again. I'm just, I'm reveling in being back into this series. I've, I've missed it. Yeah. I've, I've always been very curious as to what your feelings would be like when either we inevitably returned from, with other experiences from other books to this and not as though it's not as though you were a tabula rasa and you had never seen any, a, a book before a completely blank slate, but you know, like given the process, given everything that we've gone through, I think it was doing math the other day. And I think we were up to including some of the short pours like 19, 20 books. So a novice, no longer mm-hmm. for sure. And I'm curious as to what that feels like as well. I'm sure it'll, it'll feel how it feels to be home, you know, like if that makes sense, like, yeah, this, this style of prose and the way that Pierce Brown writes in general just really resonates with me as it, as it does with you, I'm sure. And as it does with so many people that have (laughs) devoted a ton of time into this universe. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So it's, I've really enjoyed our time away so far. But that felt like going on vacation. And after a certain amount of time Mm -hmm. on vacation, you just want to go sleep in your own bed, you know? I fully understand that. Yeah. (laughs) After three months of not sleeping in my own bed, I definitely have that. Yeah. (laughs) That feeling. (laughs) Crossland got back this week from three, what, three and a half months, two and a half, three, three months, something like that. Yeah. June 13th through September 1st is my official timeline. I did technically, for the record, I did technically pop home for a couple of days in July between Salt Lake City and Minnesota slash Wisconsin slash Kansas City slash Tulsa. Yeah. You've been been running around the country. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's been a lot of fun. Mm -hmm. It's been great. So... With that, I'd love to talk about these chapters because, boy, oh boy, 
do we have hella fucking notes it's worth just pointing out that like it is very interesting to also return to our old note taking style which is something for me that i've been kind of looking forward to because as i think i've mentioned before a number of the other books aren't grounded in our real world and so don't have the sort of metatextual commentary on on things that red rising has and i am already so excited and have read a number part of the reason that we pushed and like took an extra week beyond me just needing time was i had to reread a book or two and also had to do quite a bit of studying on some other things so that i could talk about them educatedly and not be or make a total asshole of myself on air and because that's because the role of making a total asshole of yourself is reserved for me that's true, but it's also only been a little bit over a month for most people of whom have had the book, right? Like it was late July. They had the entirety of August to read it, and now we're starting our show again up in the the first week, first full week of September. So not a whole lot of time to do nearly as much research as I did for the original five books. So, you know, I needed to, I, tr- I tried to squeeze a lot in. So here we are. But. With that, we'll start with part one, Circus. And I'm going to read the little Homerian quote here uh, to start us off. Yea, if some god shall wreck me in the wine-dark deep, even so I will endure. For already have I suffered full much, and much have I toiled in perils of waves and war. Let this be added to the tale of those. And we start off with a quote from the Odyssey, which is definitely something, you know, that just sets the tone for us right off the bat. Like Odysseus, Darrow and our other cast of characters are about to head off into a new adventure. And to me, at the very least, Lightbringer is in many ways the Odyssey. And I think that this sets kind of that stage. And I think we'll be spending a lot of time not only about this quote and how it relates to things, but about the work of Homer on the whole throughout the story. I wanted to start this off. Obviously, we have this, you know, this quote for context, but what's your exposure to the Odyssey? I think we may have talked about this before, but, you know, as a starting point for folks. Good starting point. I've read it at least a couple times, a few times. I'm not I'm not sure the count, but I know for sure we read an abridged version in high school. And then I read the full unabridged version alongside the Iliad in college in my freshman year. I don't think I've read it in full since then, so it's been 10 fucking years, but the story (laughs) is obviously pervasive and you see it everywhere in all kinds of stories and genres and different media or mediums. Mediums? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I guess Mediums. I mean, media. It's, It's one of the base stories, right? Right. But going from like TV shows to poems to books, like is that mediums or is that media? What's the term? It's like tense both, for that. But okay. So that is the medium in which you are seeing it expressed, yeah. but it is also media. Media is the Yeah. It would be like a pile of those things, right? They're all media. Okay. But yeah. Anyway, <laughs> I think it's probably high time to dig that out from the basement and clear a spot on my bookshelf for it and read it again alongside this cuz yeah, clearly pretty <laughs> connected. So there are some there's a lot. And one of the things that happened in the gap here. So I was able to read Lightbringer, but then also I reread you redid the entire series, right? You went from book one all the way through to five. And now we're we're beginning Lightbringer. Yeah, I blitzed it, though. Like I I read it while Mm -hmm. I was working 
I, I listened to it front to back over the course of probably two months, maybe less, maybe like six weeks. But it was like while I was working, so I, I didn't like focus and consume it, but I did like re-consume it. Got it. Okay. I mean, and that's, I mean, still excellent. I'm by no means shaming or anything like that, but there is, there was something that I picked up on that I hadn't even thought about. And that is that right away in the beginning of not necessarily in the beginning of dark age, but right away in the beginning of the odyssey, they talk about a moment and I'm just going to read it here. Do, do, do. He suffered much by the sea while trying to save his own life and bring his men safely home. But do what he might, he could not save his men, for they perished through their own sheer folly in eating the cattle of the sun god Hyperion. So the god prevented them from ever reaching home. Tell me, too, about all these things, O daughter of Jove, from whatsoever source you may know them. And Hyperion, of course, is the city that we spent a lot of time in between, I mean, Heliopolis, Hyperion, Tyche, kind of being a mess of the big ones so Mm -hmm. i don't think that's unintentional i don't i don't think so at all go ahead and say i don't think that's a coincidence Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. yeah i i very much believe that that quote is there to specifically point within dark age at a couple of things so it absolutely makes sense to me i just want to bring that up since we never talked about it but feels like a feels like an oversight on my part but there are a couple there are more there have been more than a couple of those that have came over time since we did this so i may at times recontextualize things because this is also kind of a new experience before the end of the series was book five for a very long time and so now we have book six of which adds context to different things that have happened before but then in addition we have a potential we have a book seven that will come out you know, at some point mm-hmm. in the next 18 months or two years. So God, that fucking long already. Gotta wait. Come on. Come on, Piercy boy. Well, I'm, Are, I'm assuming that that is mad at him already him. yelling at him to work faster. After <laughs> he just released his book. Finish a week ago. You, you've barely started <laughs> this one. All right. With that, let's get into chapter time, one. Pierce, seriously. If you're listening, yeah. you should like take four years. Yeah. I don't care. Make it good. I, I will say, yeah, take four years, take however long you need, just shorter than Rothfuss or Martin. That's all we ask. Blow him out of the Uh, water. Take a 13-year hiatus. (laughs) No. (laughs) Or even, hell, even King with with Dark Tower books. So, yeah. Not not a hard crowd to beat, but... All right. Let's start talking about the chapters here. Chapter one, Darrow Castaway. We begin with a marooned Darrow floating around Marcher 6... 1932, a moon composed purely of trash intended to be shot into the sun, but instead was an old defunct base of the sons of Ares. Darrow has been left by Cassius and Are in charge of repairing their old ship, the Archimedes, while they run off to fetch Helium-3. He, Thrax, and a number of others who escaped Mercury with him are left to tend to the sails so that hopefully they can return home. So this is something that we haven't seen a lot of yet from Mr. Brown. A fully explained piece of lore from the era of the conquering and the results that followed in like kind of a nicely tied little package that of like the the moons and or the, these garbage moons and how they were created and why and what they were doing with them and what went wrong with some of them. Like it, it feels out of 
out of tone, but really like I appreciate it. It's a plausible, realistic relic of the terraforming process. And I, I, I don't know. I like, I like lore stuff. <laughs> it's also the first thing that you read about, right? Like mm-hmm. literally the thing that you open the page to right away is, I mean, we, we completely lack a prologue, right? In the sequel mm-hmm. trilogy, there's nothing except for us and this moon trash. And as such, I think it's okay for him to start on that. It's to start basically with a little bit of a lore explainer as to why they're here. I think that works because it's the first thing that you get right off the bat, but yeah, I, I think it's beyond that. I, I think, I mean, this is, this is the only one without a prologue, but I think that's intentional. It keeps us focused on that Homer quote, it really narrows the scope of the story to this like isolated Darrow and and two hundred others. It, it like the first what was it Dark Age or I which is the one with like Atalantia. That was Dark Age, right? I mean, Atalantia is in the book. as yeah. as the prologue, the prologue of I I think Atalantia with her legions. I think that's the Iron Rain that we see in the beginning of Iron Gold. Okay. She's mentioned. Yeah, that could be. It's like she's only mentioned twice before Dark Age in the series, and that's one of the mentions, or three times. Either way, the scopes of the books like start out huge on this grand scale in all the prologues and then shrink down to wherever they start for, for our protagonist. And in this one, like you start really isolated and cast away as the name of the chapter is so i appreciated it i'm assuming it's intentional like i can't imagine something like that would go on un- <laughs> just unnoticed by pierce or just like oh yeah i forgot to do a prologue on this one <laughs> like I, I don't see that being the case no i mean there's the bit too from from hallercon 2023 where he also explained that he wrote 1.2 million words for this book and so like there's for context there's i think 240,000 words in this book so he wrote five books trying to get to the right book on this bad boy and so there's a lot of other things that are left over but to me this feels like or a lot of things that were on the cutting room floor but this feels like this probably at one point was a prologue because it does kind of have a sort of distant detached feeling but why call it a prologue when it's just the start of the fucking book you know what i mean yeah yeah that makes sense yeah not not a gripe by any stretch just you know an observation nonetheless Mm-hmm. so we're with darrow he spent a long time removed from the republic and has absolutely no clue what's actually going on he even compares it in some ways to his imprisonment that he's experienced in the past that's that shaped him and his perspective and is able to kind of like shut off that experience in his brain very quickly as he recognizes that he'll be made debris by such thoughts yeah i don't want to minimize what he's going through right now but i i feel like and he he like that sort of shutting things off and like recognizing the the poison that's in his brain by thinking about that but it it seems like the fact that his mind immediately goes there is sort of the the signs that time is actually healing some wounds and that he's able to draw comparisons to a horrifying what 18 month or I can't remember exactly how long, but a year thereabouts of time in the box, completely alone and like 
pump fed and those scars are still there. They've directed him, they've shaped him, but it seems like they are, the, the pain of them are fading to a certain degree if he's able to draw those comparisons to something like this. Yeah, I definitely think so. I think that this is more apt, especially when brought into comparison to Screwface, of which we have a little bit later, of whom really seems to be suffering and reeling from the sort of torture and has been made a de- debris of of what's been going on on the rock. And it's only his experience with the box that kind of keeps him together in this way, to your point. Mm-hmm. And, you know, not to minimize that trauma by any stretch, but, you know, experience can have that effect of inoculating against other experiences that other people may view as traumatic and your brain doesn't process them process them as such even though they are hardened to a certain yeah. degree mm-hmm. thraxa gets a little line that i love in here i've always wanted more thraxa it's so great to like have her show up in this prologue and be like right there the prologue first chapter you understand but <laughs> to to like have her included in a bigger way especially because it's always felt like she's been tertiary but like important obviously so it's been good to have her in these times these yeah, moments absolutely it's wonderful to have her more in the spotlight and i hope that trend continues i hope this wasn't just a flash in the pan like oh all right see you and we never actually go mm-hmm. back to interacting with Draxa. That would kind of, I don't know. It'd be fine, I'm sure. But I'd love to see more of her. Totally. I'm I'm definitely with you on that. And obviously, we've got more to talk about her over the course of this week. There's, you know, a whole, there's a couple of different things that will happen in later chapters. So we're definitely not leaving her behind, but a lot more to come from Thraxa. Uh, and there was something that really kind of hit me, especially as I was re-listing through immediately in prep for this today. This was not something that I took down as one of the initial notes as I was reading through or even like comprehended it when I was initially going. But there we were talking about like being made of debris and the thoughts that we mentioned earlier. But there's this comparison that I finally drew or line that I finally connected. I don't think it gets enough credit, but in much the same way that EO's live for more was the mantra of the first series and of the rising and of rebellion. I feel like Virginia's endure echoes a really similar chord now in sort of the post dark age world and is, you know, you've got this chorus from the two wives, one of whom is dead, one of whom is alive. You know, you have these two distinct kind of kind of moments. And I don't know, I think that it's it's great to have another refrain, you know, kind of swimming around in Darrow's head. And it's not just for Darrow, just like the Risings wasn't just for the Rising necessarily. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but to him it is. I, I really like your take, but I do want to expand upon it a little bit. In the case of Eos, to a certain degree, he has completed her charge he has exemplified living for more and and has brought that mantra to the people and the rising lived on it the rising grew on it but this quote while it is directed or it's directed at him and it is applicable to everyone else it was it was meant for him and he can Hold it as his own little beacon of hope for himself. It's newer. It's it's imminently relevant. And it also has the weight of his child behind it and his wife behind. Like I think he has out not outgrown, but he has 
outlived his need for the live for more mantra. And this, this has taken its place. So I'm not, I'm not trying to contradict anything you're saying, but I, I think he, he sees it as a lot more personal than the live for more in what it became. That's true. That's true. Live for more became sort of an adage of the of everything, right? And instead, endure is is more personal. But I think it is also the same message that needs to be spread throughout the republic, right? Totally. So, uh, yes, totally, totally understand exactly what you're saying, and definitely agree with it. But there is this like parallel, and not really. Again, I like I prefer using the term like echo between the two because they are both distinct in their own rights, but there are similarities between the two and how they impact kind of culture and character. Mm -hmm. So there's this moment that ends this chapter of which was the moment in which I really went like, fuck, yeah, I'm so excited for this. And there's a lot that's that's going on inside of this chapter as we like continue to repair the Archimedes, he's been left by Cassius. There are all of these kind of other things that are going on in the background. But I love this this end quote that we get here for the chapter practically. I've seen things a red miner was never meant to see. Unspeakable horrors, impossible beauty, things that would make the tale of particles seem commonplace. But today I feel a little different, a little more willing to see there's beauty here on this stepping stone. Maybe it's the book, maybe it's the radiation. Whatever it is, I feel like today I have enough strength to look the other way, past the shadowy shoulder of the Archimedes to an expanse of stars in the distance where my eyes settle on a dim, ruddy light. Home. And for me, A, quote rules, but the tone of this quote really sets this up to be a lighter, more hopeful book almost right out the gate. Not that there isn't immediately darkness, but often darkness we can look up from and kind of see hope potentially at the end of this this tunnel post this dark age mm -hmm. yeah i can only hope for that to remain true going <laughs> forward i <laughs> i made some predictions i don't know if i, if oh, I listened, listened to i absolutely okay. listened yeah people should yeah. go listen so i we, we posted that last week just some overall predictions for this story and i hope most of them are wrong I I did not have a whole lot of hope in, in those predictions, and I'm excited to see a little bit more hope in, <laughs> in in the actual storytelling of this book so far. That's totally fair. Speaking of the storytelling of this book, let's move into chapter two, Darrow, the book. For those of you who don't know, by the way, we switched formats just ever so slightly in the Greenbone Saga, and I maybe should have mentioned this at the very top, we're now providing summaries to begin chapters, in case you can't tell, to just give fuel to whatever PJ potentially wants to talk about if I don't bullet point it, because there were times in which we would just kind of get lost in other ideas and just want to make sure that we provide a summary to remind you of what's going on in the chapter and then to also, you know, kind of blanket statement things so that, like, if I didn't bring focus to it, it's not my fault and I can't be uh, Yeah, it's blamed. my fault. For PJ not <laughs> latching into it, <laughs> I mean that like it's not your fault, but like I, you know, I can't say literally everything in the chapter, otherwise we'd be here for literally four hours, and we already are here for four hours sometimes. So send your anger to Crossland at wordsandwhiskey.show, which is not a real email address. That's not a real tag. Yeah, <laughs> no, just send it to words, <laughs> words and whiskey. Better yet, send your ire to patreon.com forward slash words and whiskey. Join at any of the available tiers and we will be excited to have you and I will commiserate 
with your ire and try to address it in the future. There we go. That that works. <laughs> All right. With that, we enter Marcher 1632 and find it sparse and old as well as putting a time frame since they've entered this rock. They've been here for nigh on eight months inside of the space. We also catch up with Screwface and Haranassus. All the meanwhile, beginning to ask questions of a rim pink ore. Dara then heads off to train while listening to the book. And I should say he heads off to Lysander's room to train, of course, which is fun and different. Yeah, this is putting it all there in this summary makes me realize how dense these chapters can be. Like, I, mm-hmm. I know all of these things happened. But I just I would have guessed if you had if you had just asked me, like, how many chapters does this cover? <laughs> I would have guessed like two or three, probably. <laughs> Chris Brown's like, a different breed, man. He doesn't yeah. stop. Yeah. Uh-huh. Everything happens. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I definitely agree with that. There is a ton that happens here. And it's kind of crazy for how thick of a book is just like how much goes on in general so we'll get there but yeah there's there's a lot in this section but mm-hmm. one of the moments that's rather sweet i think is that ragnar's impact is still felt as we see that almost everyone has had the hair fall out of their head from the radiation and that beards are worn in, in his honor i think this is especially fun when juxtaposed later against lysander's perspective wherein people are wearing colorful wigs and being fanciful to cover it showing that the society hasn't really changed and is still incredibly indulgent wherein the republic and its soldiers honor everything that's came before in a I mean, I don't want to reuse the word honorific in a sentence in which I've already said honor, but it's meant to honor those who came before and striving for something more, like we've been saying. Mm -hmm. I feel like I should know this, but just don't. Does radiation primarily affect, like, head hair and not, like, beard hair? No, so it does affect wherever they point the little lasers at. Or, you know, if you're getting chemo, the drugs universally kind of affect your body. This this is kind of a, a flood of radiation that they've been exposed to. Like, they, it wasn't really pointed at anything specific. So my, my assumption is, given your sort of parameters of what you'd written and the fact that they aren't exposed to the sun directly at all, is that because they have their backs turned and they're working on the ship, it's predominantly like their head and not their face. And he does also say those who can. Right. So okay. it's not like everyone does. Yeah. So my my like working assumption is they're mostly working facing away. And so it's hitting their backs and therefore predominantly their head and not their faces. Gotcha. But I did. I did have to Google this after you put it in the document and went, huh, I don't know either. <laughs> <laughs> so that's that's how I came to this working theory. Yeah. OK. I, I appreciate it. Yeah. But it is nice to see them honoring the hulking monster of a man that is Ragnar. (laughs) Right. He's been gone for such a long time, and yet... He's been gone for a very long time. Yeah. How long has he been... Like, how many years has it been since Morningstar? I think... I want to say 13 or 14 since he died at this point. Okay, because it, it's been 16 years since, like, Darrow's 32 years old, I think. Yeah, 16 years yeah. since the Institute, right? Yeah. So it's probably been 12 or 13. Okay. 
I there is a and I will link this once I pull it up. One of our patrons and friends of the show, Amy, had submitted a friend's timeline of whom I will properly credit by the time that this goes live in the show notes. But they have compiled an entire timeline that is book by book accurate to give pictures of what exactly and when exactly things happen. So I actually have all of the tools now to do the precise math on when stuff is. Did I forget to pull it up for this? Yeah. Am I going to have it in the future? Absolutely. I'm going to have it on rotation. So nice. An excellent little tool to double check timing of events. We check in on a number of characters getting flashes to remember the past of what happened in the fever nightmare that was Dark Age. Virginia <laughs> having fled to Mars, as well as Severo, lost in the fall of Luna to the Vox Populi during the fallout from the Day of Red Doves. We also see some returning faces between Cadus Haranassus and Screwface's return throughout the chapter. How'd you feel about all, all these notes coming back to the surface. I mean, what would you call it? A fever nightmare? <laughs> yeah, that yeah, is apt. I felt like that, that was makes accurate. sense. That, uh, totally accurate. Um, mm-hmm. But in a way, very similar to Thraxa, I feel like we haven't really been exposed to that much of Screwface. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's been around since book one. <laughs> but he, th- this is one of the very few instances that of direct conversation that I can recall with him. He's been through the fucking ringer, man. He is, he is a person that has been chewed up and spit out multiple times. Mm-hmm. Yeah. As, as Darrow put it for sure, he's been chewed up, spit out and chewed up again and spit out and made beautiful and spit out. And there's, there's a lot here to talk about with, uh, with screw face. We did get, um, FaceTime with him in dark age. That was kind of the first, mm-hmm. I would say like serious moments outside of seeing him in a bunch of other scenes and knowing that he was always there. Um, great example of where a TV show would fill in some of those, some of those gaps. What about the conversations with, uh, with Harnassus? How do we feel about him now? So he was the... He's an orange. He's a commander. He was kind of seeking a higher position during Dark Age because Darrow was almost deemed unfit, but ultimately didn't overstep that boundary. Right. But what was his, like, claim to fame before our interaction with him? Like, I feel like, similar to Glorostes, there was something... Mm, I don't think he had anything crazy. I thought, okay. No, mostly Glorosti's got a lot of the orange glow and appreciation, but the thing about Harnassus is that he's willing to get down in the dirt and work. Right. Um, Always has been. So despite being, you know, an arch imperator, he's still very much Mm -hmm. in the mix. He seems confident. He seems intelligent and capable and fits really well with this cadre of commanders that we've got going here so happy to have him in the mix excellent and we also start to see small notes of ore and her impact on morale throughout the chapter what do you remember of ore and that name from the previous books as well as harnass's notes on her being a member of the cryptea I honestly do not remember <laughs> her at all from the previous books and assumed that she was a completely new character. Did she appear in like the rim or something? She did. She okay. was in Iron Gold. She gotcha. was the one of whom was who informed Lysander of what happened to Cassius gotcha. at the very end, basically. Okay. 
Yeah, I do not feel good about Ore. <laughs> no? No. Why's um, that? You know, it, it's even mentioned, like, the, it's mentioned by name in this story. But we've we've talked about drawing comparisons to the Odyssey for this book, and she has been mentioned as a siren, and that doesn't <laughs> that doesn't bode well. Like, mm-hmm. and she acts like it. She doesn't act like it, but people react to her like she is a, an unavoidable siren. <laughs> so. Yeah, and I I think that the one the one thing that I would add here is that like everyone's reluctant to say that she's actually a problem because she does do things that raise morale, right? Like mm-hmm. Harnassus made her a liar so that she could play music. And, that that seems know. even more <laughs> bad. More. I mean, it feeds into the siren, the siren bit, of course. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It definitely feeds into the siren songy bit, but mm-hmm. yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I feel like I, I very I, much feel yeah. like. We'll get to a point where she causes the crash of the entire, like, crew, and Pierce is just going to shrug his shoulders and say, I spoon-fed you everything you needed to know about what she was doing. But so I, like, I, I still, I feel like I want to trust her, and I think that's the most intoxicatingly poisonous, like, part of her like i want to trust her so i'm so like naturally opposed to trusting her do you uh, we got to make a bet on ore we got to make a bet on ore doom 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 void death destruction doom all right by what means (laughs) i don't know by what means okay the siren damn it she's a siren damn it i think is a very yeah i i think I think you are smart enough. I think we, I'm going to, I'm going to throw myself in there because I need to be more (laughs) confident in myself. I think we're smart enough to be able to tell whether or not she was a siren in the end. Sure. Mm -hmm. Okay. Cool. Leading the ship to the rocks. All right. I fucking not to move on so quickly, but I fucking love screw face and we're going to talk more about Ori later and we only get so much screw face. FaceTime. So <laughs> <laughs> screw FaceTime. I love screw face FaceTime. I love him. What do you think about his presentation here? How he's been made into something new? How we get this flash of him before when he became confident and had a bolder chin and prettier look than even Cassius does. What do you what do you think about seeing kind of the the flash between man made, man broken, and man degraded? Yeah. It's heartbreaking, man. And I feel like I'm gonna probably talk about a lot of heartbreaking things throughout this story but maybe it's just the first hand accounts that we've had from darrow's perspective through these like five books coming before this but for whatever reason i feel like i get screw's feelings and his progression based on these little descriptions and i i so badly want him to come out on top in whatever way that that's possible at the end of the story. But like, I, I feel like if I had read this book first, I wouldn't feel like that. But because we've seen 
Darrow go through the meat grinder so many fucking times. I feel like we can fill in those blanks in in a very tangible way with Screwface. Yeah, I, I think so, too. I think especially he he works as a great juxtaposition against Darrow, right? And I think we were kind of saying this earlier is like this has been Darrow's life mission career since the having to pull Yo's feet, right? And so he's he's been broken, beaten, and we use the comparison of like the trauma and experience that he's gone through. And so it's not to say that this isn't nothing, but it's a lot to someone of whom hasn't been through the same kind of things. And so mm-hmm. not that it's not traumatic for Darrow, not that it's not bad, but obviously, you know, it's it's still bad. He acknowledges that. And I think that's the one thing that I really appreciate about this is that this is a Darrow acknowledging other people and their feelings and like being up front with them for what feels like the first time in at least two books, seeing people as people and not instruments or tools to be mm-hmm. wielded. Yeah. The Reaper's dead. Long live the Reaper. So Darrow then confines himself for a moment of training and we find that he's taken up a residence in the Archimedes in Lysander's room, no less. He also says the blade in my hand can't fix what's broken. And this feels like to me a big admittance that the Reaper isn't what we need and that the driving personality of that side, as we've been talking about it for a lot of this back part of the sequel series, did die on Mercury at the hands of Lysander. I feel like there's, it's not there yet, but the, the start of connective tissue of symbolism is being like threaded together in the form of Darrow's razor being the soul of the Reaper. And Mm -hmm. that being lost is the symbolic death of the Reaper or, or at least like the, the extinguishment of its flame or whatever you want to call it. I'm interested in seeing if that maintains. But yeah, to me, like we're getting a lot of symbolism and we're getting a lot of if if Darrow and the Reaper are two very different people, the Reaper without the sling blade razor doesn't exist. Yeah. And I I think that it's important to say that it's not necessarily fully you know, that right. either of us, I think, believe that they're two completely different people. Yeah, I don't think they're so much as it is that like it, it's not like one two thing different takes over personalities or yeah. anything like that. But but he very yeah, much car- right. compartmentalizes all of his mm-hmm. feelings when he's in Reaper mode. Yeah, yeah. I even read in in preparation for this. I reread about fifty pages of the Battle of the Ladon because I wanted to like pull pull little bits to talk about a little bit later this week and so i had to reread a a whole section of that and it is definitely a different darrow even peering inside of his head for those brief moments and it's like whoa as far as the comparison goes just just the vocal inflection that tim gerard reynolds gives to the reaper in those chapters Mm -hmm. is it's chilling (laughs) It's so yeah. fucking good. And here we are, like, <laughs> fawning over TGR again, but I'm going to a lot. <laughs> mm-hmm. And Naturally. I get to a lot more of this book. <laughs> 
I do definitely want to bring something up maybe for the audiobook listeners and and whatnot, since we're kind of talking about it. Obviously, TGR took over this whole book. He also, at some point along the line, caught COVID, and it did change his vocal range and inflection a little bit. I also found there to be some really weird spots of audio production issues in mostly the first 20 chapters or so. Uh, the fact that you even brought it up, PJ, means that good on you. But I noticed right away that there was a little bit of an evenness in the production. I um, noticed it, but you had also yeah. warned me about it like weeks, well, weeks ago. So I knew I knew Got that it. that was coming. Yeah, I, I think that it it definitely goes away at a certain point. And that might have to do even with just like last minute edits and having to do retakes and like, you know, getting it prepped for actual release and whatnot. I haven't gone back to see if anything was edited, redone or reproduced in any small significant ways. But I just want to let everyone know there is there's a little bit of that in the very beginning. I can I I, I would be willing to bet that chapter six and chapter seven or not chapters, chapter five and chapter six recorded at very very different times because it almost it almost feels like it's a different uh voice actor doing a tim Drew well, reynolds impression i'm gonna tell you that that's tgr's lysander and it's also tgr's lyria and but, he's got a little bit of a different monologue but going for, from four to like, five didn't feel like that Mm. Like chapter six specifically feels different than the rest. Got of it. Got it. Okay. I was so going to say, cause that's definitely like, he gives like a little bit of a higher pitch to Lysander and like a little yeah. bit of a different, even the internal monologue, which makes sense. I mean, especially switching mm. from, you know, it, the original trilogy being only TGR in the one voice to now having to maintain, um, four POVs, you know, it's, it's a very different beast as one person. And so each gets their own sort of spin naturally mm. makes sense i'm only i'm only bummed in the fact that it's tgr the whole time because it hasn't been tgr the whole time and i feel like this is very much a you can't that like pierce can't necessarily win because some people really didn't like the other narrators and tgr is also a god and i think that all crowds have some points but in the end i would have preferred consistency over everything else but yeah. i totally understand i'm, I'm, I'm down there. I also think that this is still really great and I have no real complaints outside of the small stretch, which feels a little bit strangely produced more than anything else. Anyway, I digress from that weird side tangent. So we move to the training sequence and boy, oh, is it wonderful. The combination of the pain of the injuries that Lysander left him with, as well as training in varied gravity while listening to Virginia speak the book. This to me screams adaptation. Oh, God, yes. Yes, it does. Absolutely. We we also get a sort of flash of an update of the current state of robots within this society, which we've had a, a lot of jokes about. What did we call it? Nero's, Nero's folly or something like that. Whatever it was. Yeah. Um, yeah. But between this chapter and the, the Lysander chapter that we get, we learn that Despite Lysander's maybe being a fudge of things a little bit, but the wounds that they quote unquote gave each other are mirrored in that they're they're both giving motivation in a certain degree. Darrow's is more of a just 
kind of frustrating limitation, but he doesn't fail to remember who gave it to him and that he needs to die. And Lysander's, we'll get to it, I'm sure, but he wears it like a like a crown almost and refuses to get rid of the, quote, Darrow's, unquote, boot mark on his face. Yeah, we'll talk about that for sure. <laughs> that's that's a whole thing, of course. Yeah, I don't know. There's There's a lot to this that's just lovely and that I love that comparison of the wounds as motivation, even though, you know, one is... One is more immediate. He feels it even in his left lung when he tries to breathe, like straining almost to breathe because of an injury and like not actually for the first time that we've really experienced in the show or in the in the book series, not having like a carver to immediately fix something. So having something of a scar that's not just intentional. So I'd love to talk about the understandings that we get here from the book itself while Darrow is practicing at the Willow Way while being read to in Virginia's voice. So to read a couple of them here. So there's to start what I assume is a dedication to those who wrote that we might before, before you read them, this is like artificial generation of Virginia reading this book, right? Or did she actually read this book for him? No, this is artificial. Yeah. I I instructed the computer to narrate the text. So. Gotcha. Yep. Thanks. Yep. And then computer voice sample from Holofile 131 Sovereign Saturnalia address. So, you know, it's using effectively AI. to. I'm sure it's speakers. better than the computers or the AI that we have. But can you just imagine her like, yes, it's her voice, but no, the syntax doesn't work with the sample that she, that they have. So it like, hello, Darrow, how are you do, doing today? would <laughs> just total fucked up like no like natural voice like obviously it's better than that like but i can just imagine like just a really bit. really fucked up yes this is virginia's voice but no it wasn't worth it to to make the computer do this kind of situation yeah, I feel like that would be the way that it would like go these days. But at this point, I still imagine it not being quite right. Like, I think some of the imperfection of it would be what in an adaptation, right? Having it be imperfect and not perfect would be like, this is close, but it's not the same. And yeah. so like he I still think, misses her in the end and kind of reflects on it. I think they'd have to do it in that way. Yeah. So it's like it's close, but you could see him like grimacing as he takes certain stances and defends himself and whatever, mm-hmm. not just from his wounds, but from hearing the words in different ways. So to go through these to those who wrote what we might read to those who fell. So me white, we might walk to those who came before. So we might come after gratitude. The first understanding, the path to the veil is inscrutable, eternal and perfect. It cannot be seen with eyes nor felt underfoot. It winds as it wills. It ends where it must It climbs when it does. It falls when it should. It stretches deep into the rocks we dig and back into our hearts. It winds on before us and after us in all directions and none. Though we may walk it, we may never master it. Though we may see the path, we can never know the truth. The path to the veil is inscrutable, eternal, and perfect. It must be followed at all cost. 
The fourth understanding. The supreme good is the wind of the deep minds. It flows through rock and around people and over all lands. The wind is oblivious to obstacles, though they shape her path. When you smell rust on her breeze or hear the echo of tools in the dark, smile and be glad. The path is upon you and you are upon it. All you must do is walk. There's one more note here to to just read that the words of the book are, as I first thought, opaque. I do not understand them yet, much less accept them, but they remind me of something I read long ago when I trained with Mateo. Not Dumas, not the Greeks, something that fell between the cracks. The book is familiar, as comforting as the echo of a lullaby from my childhood. Yeah. My, my immediate thought was, and like obviously the mention of the veil and things like that, like it's not just a book in our world from stoic history but i wondered if there was like a one-to-one analog that that pierce brown was pulling from for this and you and i had a little bit of a conversation before we actually started recording and that was our like okay maybe we should like save this for the recording and we kind of shut up about it but yeah i i was i was curious if it was a stand-in analog for some stoic philosopher which we you like you and i have talked at length about stoicism and pierce brown has talked quite extensively about his love of those philosophers and meditations and all all sorts of like these this series is dripping with stoic philosophy so I just kind of assumed that there was some obscure Stoic text that was being plopped in here, but it doesn't seem to be the case. Is that right? I would say that there's no specific Stoic text that is being pulled on here. However, there is a Taoist text that is being mm. pulled on here, which is the Tao Te Ching or Tao Te Ching or Tao Te Ching if you are generally educated in english i think is the way that two ways to pronounce it regardless the proper way i believe is tao te ching um or tao te ching is the way that you may have heard it in the past that's how it was taught to us in history class at the very least or you know my world history classes but it is definitely taoist in origin with notes of meditations kind of sprinkled through um meant to be sort of a simple philosophical text it feels like which is why i feel like it evokes the sort of taoist tradition here and throughout okay that that makes a lot of sense Mm -hmm. Um, yeah i didn't want to answer that off air entirely but i was like yeah no there is there is definitely something but i'm not going to tell you because i'm not yeah (laughs) We got to yeah. record that shit. Right. Yeah, that that makes a lot of sense. And would you just, for the sake of the podcast, would you recommend mm-hmm. I read that? I don't know necessarily that it needs to, I mean, in general, it's it's an easy read, right? Like yeah. the, the as, as stupid, this is so reductive and not at all what I'm intending, but a lot of the the point of Taoism and how easy and approachable it is, is the same sort of writing and methodology that goes into fortune cookies, right? Like not that it's the silly sort of fortunes, but that it's sort of easy and flows together. It reads almost like water and like, is just almost just washes over you as a very simple text, but it's digestible, still obviously. Yeah. Digestible and philosophical throughout. So I don't know that it 
it needs to be read necessarily, but as it comes up, I do have some parallels that I found because I read it. <laughs> so I've got some some similar passages to talk about in different moments. But at a certain point, I think that to me, what this points out is that Pierce is citing all of these different philosophical sources and is pointing to them being like, look, no matter where it comes from, they're fairly similar. And I think that's the other reason that he says that this isn't almost in text says that this is similar, but not the same as other texts. And so mm-hmm. I think he's kind of writing not not entirely his own philosophy book, but also something that's kind of not fully original, but nonetheless a philosophical treaty, treaty of sorts. Gotcha. That makes sense. A lot more to come with the book, of course. Of course. We're not we're not leaving this behind, even though Darrow tries to at one point. So <laughs> do we get a name with- of the book? Not as of yet. I mean, I know, <laughs> so I know, I haven't gotten the name. Will I get? Yeah. The, it, will it be called the book? The book for the, the rest of the story definitely or? has a name. Okay. Sounds the good. book has a name. You can refer to it as the shitty pages if you'd like, or the book, or not quite toilet paper. Not quite toilet paper. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We can refer to it as not quite toilet paper. The just barely better than Charmin. I want to make a ply joke, but I, I'm not. I'm coming up empty. The philosophy one ply. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Toilet yeah. reading material. Anyway. Yeah. Regardless, lots to come with the with the book as of yet, and things that we'll talk about for sure. Did you have any other specific thoughts about any of the understandings that are pointed out here? I don't think so, and like I I, I don't mean for that to be dismissive but i i think in what you were talking about in that like they're pretty straightforward they're pretty mm. understandable and digestible and there's not a lot of a mystery to them or 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 i'm not going to say there's not depth because there is there there's depth to it but it's not it's not something that needs to be uncovered it it, it lays itself bare pretty well does that make yeah. sense? Totally. I, I definitely get it. The only thing I wanted to bring up is there's the obvious. The wind is oblivious to the obstacles that though they shape her path, which is very much the obstacles the way, but also like yeah. the path that you're on is the path that you're on, which is a common, you know, mm-hmm. Taoist thing as well. And it just shows how much really a lot of people talk about the differences in western philosophy and eastern and there's actually a lot of similarities between stoicism and eastern philosophy that is now within the last 40 years or so more often discussed but stoicism is almost like borrowed we're not sure as to when exactly it may have intersected but it feels very eastern despite being a western philosophy yeah and i mean as far as my limited understanding of Eastern versus Western philosophy goes, Eastern philosophy seems to draw comparisons between humanity and nature, which is obviously exemplified by this, like the wind and like the elemental sort of aspects that Ore talks about and, and how, how a human it's it's the personification of these elements whereas western philosophy is not augmenting the human understanding of things but you get to the same place often 
Yeah, I well, I would say that a lot of Western philosophy doesn't necessarily land in the same place. It's more sort of self-control and like internalized thoughts as opposed to externalized or externalizing. So like Eastern has a lot of these sort of and this is very general for anyone listening at oh, home. For sure. I'm sure I'm a and fucking I could talk idiot more when it comes to, yeah, to a lot of this. So. I'm just trying to create a, a yeah. generalization on top of a generalization here. So just for a brief moment, understand that we're explaining this to a wider audience. But in general, I think that a lot of Western philosophy being from Greeks, Italians, Spanish, Germans, wherever you wherever you get and source that from in the European sense of things is generally seeking to understand like the nature of the universe through the human experience. And instead, Eastern philosophy seeks to understand the human experiences because it's shaped by nature because nature shapes it so it's it's sort of a a perspective difference and that's also why stoicism is weirdly on that line where it's like stop caring about the things that are outside of your control and instead just kind of go with the flow more and so that's why stoicism like rides that line weirdly and that's why they think that there's some other impacts that had happened along the line because you know one you had one of the founders was a slave one was a a senator and one was a an emperor and they all had very different but similar writings that kind of landed in similar spaces but they were also all exposed to very different cultures and so that's why they believe that there's a little bit more of an eastern influence anyway i digress so i hate that but love that this book in the first two chapters that we've talked about have, what is it, four or five books now that I want to read in conjunction with it? Like, you and I both bought copies of Seneca when we were together mm-hmm. at the bookstore. Well, uh, I just needed a physical. Well, yeah, I haven't <laughs> read it. So yeah. now I have a copy of Seneca mm-hmm. and I want to read that. I want to reread Meditations. I want to read the Taoist text that you just mentioned. I Tao Te Ching. Yeah. Yep. Tao Te Ching. Um, yeah. The Odyssey. And while I'm at it, I might as well read the Iliad as well. Like, fuck, dude. <laughs> too many books. Yeah. But I, it's true. With the exception of Tao Te Ching. Did yeah. I say that right? Classics, man. Uh, I, I, I have all of them. Yeah. Tao Te, Tao Te Ching, like C H I N G, or Tao Te Ching. Again, to anyone listening, I would totally take a correct pronunciation so I don't butcher that for the rest of the show this time up front. Thank I'll you. take it as well, uh, and no. I'll still butcher it for the rest of the show. Which, whichever is the more polite version, if you wouldn't mind. I know that both are technically correct to different audiences, but whatever makes the most sense, I'll stick with one. So, all right. So, from there, we... <laughs> Why do we keep digressing? I wanted to make mention... Yeah, lots of digressions here. It's because no one else is going like, hey, <laughs> what are you doing? We've, we haven't done this in a while. There is one other note that I wanted to add in here about kind of the training in the end. He ultimately goes back to his room. There's no whole lot of water. He cleans himself off with his knife, sturgling and kind of wiping off the dead skin and also the the sweat. But then in addition, he records a message to his wife as though we'd just been talking and store it with the rest without reviewing it. And then he also records a message to Pax, another chapter in the testimony of an absentee father. And boy, oh boy, I, that line sinks my little boat. 
<laughs> every time I think about being yeah. happy in this early section of the book, he's exactly what Lauren warned him he was going to become. Yeah, Lauren's pretty fucking smart. Mm-hmm. I, I'm surprised that Ghost Lauren doesn't show up in his thoughts here. Like, <laughs> force Obi Wan totally doesn't need to. He's his presence. His presence is felt. Absolutely. We end here this chapter with Screwface's voice filling the room, shouting battle stations as a Votum torch ship approaches the moon. I don't know if this technically belongs in this chapter, but I'm going to bring it up Mm -hmm. anyway, because it's like the energy of the crew when this, when this announcement comes on, it's a weird energy and that, that, that feels like something that uh, is pervasive throughout the rest of this section on the Archimedes is weird energy. And it's not dread and it's not doom, but it's excitement. And maybe it's just a change of pace. And maybe it's the fact that this is what they trained for. They didn't train to be welders on a, on a welding team or ship repair men. So like we're soldiers, so damn it, we're going to go go out as soldiers. But as we talked about before, like this could also just be a glimmer of hope. And we'll get to it later with the conversation between Darrow and Thraxa, but they could take that ship. They don't need to be waiting on Cassius, who probably won't return in their eyes. And they could have a they could have a ride home through this siege yeah yeah i mean i think that to your point of there being like this sort of excitement is it goes from feeling empty and sort of useless in the moment to and also like reflecting on and seeing the institute again as they steal the flag he jumps from bed guilty with joy last to fight an opportunity this i know how to do i dress in sober glee ready to kill and that is kind of a weird energy to go into yeah. like being found. Yeah. S- similarly, Thrax is like grinning while they're talking mm-hmm. about this shit and talking about losing probably more than half the men. Yeah. That doesn't happen until the next chapter. Yeah, I know. I know. I know. For sure I know. it does. Yeah. But yeah. Felt apt for mm-hmm. this. Totally. All right. With that, chapter three Darrow, Revenants. Thraxa and Darrow rush to defend as the Votum ship approaches, revealed quickly to be Cassius and Ore, having returned from their mission. Callaway Char provides updates on the Republic and the Society, as well as the fallout of Mercury. Severo has been sold at auction. Yeah. This was a harrowing meeting with Char. Like, obviously the relationship's been strained, but our man Warlock... Seems like the fucking shell of a person in his responses. Um, mm. In the few sentences of lead up, like it's 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 a paragraph. The the whole thing is a paragraph. But when Screwface wasn't responding to the radio calls, like seriously, it's like two sentences. But like in mm. that, I felt like the pit of my heart dropping because we'd just gotten so much FaceTime with Screwface. I'm like, oh god, he's gone. well that was his swan song like we didn't get much of him so we got a bunch and now he's dead (laughs) 
And that's that's how I believe Pierce Brown will treat my heart truly and completely. I, I believe that. <laughs> <sighs> yeah. Well, I do agree with you, though, that like Callaway does feel like a broken version of himself, kind of in a weird way. But we'll talk about that more when we actually yeah. get to his presentation as he, he rhymes and whatnot. But yeah, I mean, it's worth pointing out with Screwface that like part of the reason that he feels like run down is because he is run down. And so this is like he went quiet because he probably thought he was going to die. <laughs> you know, the sadness, the summertime, summertime sadness. Summertime sadness. Mm-hmm. Or moon time sadness, perhaps. I don't I don't think the seasons change based on what plant like But what if they did? Alternatively. Do moons have seasons? Does this moon have a season? Do garbage moons have seasons? I don't know. It sprouted gas pockets when the sun hit it, so I guess. <laughs> Kind of. <laughs> very yeah. short seasons. Very short, very short. You had made mention of this at the very end of the last chapter, but I really enjoy how immediately in sync Dara and Thrax are about how to respond to the ship. It immediately reminds me, though, at the same time of Daxo and Virginia and how the pairing of these families with each other has been so integral to their continued endurance throughout this rebellion. Um Despite the fact, obviously, that Daxo was turned into a volleyball during the day of Red Dubs, and Thraxa is obviously still kicking, but and Pax has been dead for a while. They've they've been intertwined, and nonetheless, these two families are linked at the hips. Total like Darrow's son is named after Thraxa's brother. Like they're they're yeah. close. Mm-hmm. Despite not having a ton of FaceTime with Thraxa in the books, like it's clear that this these families are very, very, very close. Um, mm-hmm. And that's a great comparison talking about Virginia and Daxo who go back well before the Institute. As a child, Virginia lived with Daxo. Um, mm-hmm. So totally inseparable family connections. Um, but even if you strip that away, Thraxa and Darrow have lived together with each other in very close quarters for the last almost year, eight months on this ship. So I'm sure they've run through simulations or hypotheticals of what would happen if they got because they've been they've been nervous about being found the entire time they, they've been they've been paranoid about it they've I'm, I, I can't imagine they didn't talk about all of the possibilities of how it would go down if they actually did get invaded in some way so yes they're on the same page but i think they would have been even if they were complete strangers before landing on this rock yeah kindred spirits right yeah like there's the other side of that, though, that it reminds me, you know, as we're talking about these comparisons, reminds me immediately of the same scene that we kind of got with Daxo and Virginia as they were preparing to walk into the political moment, right? Like they had the same sort of urgency about the decision that was going to be made, what needed to be done prior to the Day of Red Doves as they walked around. So similar notes there between the two. Not that obviously this is that sort of a moment, but nonetheless, it has similar tones with with the characters and with the family right 
So from the torch ship, we quickly learn that it's not occupied by villains that are immediately going to throw the whole ship into chaos, but instead Callaway Char, the warlock, is our first to disembark, and the man feels like he's become much more numb, whereas before Mercury, he felt like the hotshot pilot with an attitude, and he's just got a much harder edge now. You know, I imagine him kind of like wearing like a black duster and being like, fuck off a little bit more <laughs> as yeah. opposed to sort of the the ne'er-do-well attitude he had before. Yeah, I definitely imagine like the from other sources of media, think like Starcraft or even like naval sort of media, but the Imperator like navy blue jacket with tail like like suit with tails and just like very mm-hmm. clean and crisp and like well put together but thin as a rail and and sharp i we talked a little bit very briefly about me calling him a shell of a person but i i'm wondering if that's wrong and if it's more just that his connection to darrow has all but evaporated and the weight of leadership that he's been thrust into, wanted or not, has has significantly honed and sharpened him into into much more of a focused tool than his top gun hotshot sort of persona <laughs> that he had. He was an action figure before. Now he's like actually like a hardened leader of a galactic fleet. Yeah. He is definitely a hardened leader of a galactic fleet now. And he's he's filling that role that was left for him, right? Like there's a vacancy and he had to step up. So he steps up. That's mm-hmm. that's the going ons. And I'm sure there's some resentment there. Like he's in in at least some ways replaced Darrow in some leadership positions not not entirely but there's definitely like a, a a sphere of influence that darrow held that he's had to take over uh partially or entirely and maybe there's some resentment to that if it wasn't something that he wanted to do or if the stress has become so great that it's hard to bear and this guy's just been fucking off on a garbage planet for eight months when everyone presumed right. dead yeah and hundreds of thousands of people didn't get there with him you can certainly understand why he's got that level of frustration and, and the weight on his shoulders right mm-hmm. um you know he he brings all of this very heavy news namely of and like a lot of it's good news as well but that Mars stands to which he wheels in a brown for suggesting otherwise. Virginia and the crew there is alive for the most part. Two Rim Armadas have joined the war led by Helios and Dido. Quicksilver is lost to the wind. Cephi is dead, killed by Ragnar's father, supposedly. And that Rona likely died on Mercury when the EMP went off and all of the army that was left was turned into a road of corpses between the cities or slaves for the mines. Yeah, it's a fucking machine gun fire of news, man. Like, yeah, I love Darrow's description of drunkenness on it Mm -hmm. and and the intoxicating nature of just news 
and everything's been a soup of uncertainty and now now it's all collapsing into realities i'm i'm not convinced surprise surprise that rona is dead but to hear that she's lost is certainly unsettling and frustrating Something that you didn't mention, Rolo was assassinated and Kieran, Darrow's brother, took up Arch Governorship, which is... We knew that in Dark Age, personally. Like, we knew that. Did we know that? Darrow didn't know that. Yeah. Oh, Darrow I forgot, didn't know that, I forgot we knew about that, that entirely. Yeah. So, so <laughs> that was a cool revelation for me, having <laughs> forgotten somehow. I didn't remember that. All right. Mm-hmm. It's all good. I had actually not even realized or not even remembered that the Republic kept the title of arch governorship or that that station in their structure. I mean it, it makes sense ultimately you're the like the leader of the planet, right? So like <clears throat> functionally it's not necessarily it is it's weird because it is kind of like using the title of the oppressor still or like continuing that legacy to some degree. At the same time, it's not as though they had time to sit and debate each individual small little thing when they still had to fight a society that wanted to kill all of them. Yeah, so. but like naturally, I would have assumed that there would have been a like solar system Senate and like the solar system Senate. And then, like, there sub-senates on each planet. There there likely is. Oh, I'm but sure Arch there Governor are, but... is still, like, a president. You know what I mean? Like, it's like... Yeah. Yeah, yeah that's fair. It's not as though it's, I'm, like, Nero, I'm still just so surprised speak, that but... the title remained. Is sure. All. Yeah. Yeah. I can totally understand that. And also, I can understand that not being something um, that you recall between the books, because I think it's mentioned, like, twice that Rolo died, and it's also only in Virginia's perspective. I actually do kind of remember Rolo dying, but I also don't remember Rolo being arch governor. Hmm. Okay. But cool. I'm sure we talked about it. <laughs> like, uh, I'm sure on this did. show, we talked about it maybe for longer than we needed to. <laughs> yes. Yes. Probably the case. My brain but we then is moved... garbage. Like this well, it's also been that, that Darrow's on. <laughs> It's also been like a year and change, so you're excused. Mm. More than a year and change. It's been two years since we finished Dark Age, almost. Is it really? Right? Yeah. So we started Dark Age in July of 2021. We finished it in November of 2021. (sighs) There you go. We've been doing this show for a while. Uh (laughs) It has been a while. All right. So we then move to Cassius, chipper as ever as he carries out Helium-3, having returned with his glorious chin in tow. There's also clever references. We get our description of Ore as a rare pink. She's described as not a cheap thrill, using comparisons of wings like we've seen on Eevee in the past, but then also nor a Helen of Troy either. Another pointed reference to our Homerian story taking shape and form here, but everyone rushes to help Ore as she carries out this canister of Helium-3. You can barely manage it as her arms begin to buckle under the weight and Thraxa snags the heavy container from her. What do you think? Hey, yeah, how I you mean, feeling? This, this feeds more. Like this is what I was thinking of when, yeah, talking about her as a siren. And man, she knows it. She's intelligent, and this display just shows how well she can dictate the actions of an entire crowd of horny soldiers. 
<laughs> she she's masterful and like rightfully so and we know that in much in the same way that i i'm assuming she is comparable to a rose but on the rim like i'd assume she's like the rim equivalent of a rose she's referred to as a hetera right a yeah. couple of times yeah. which seems to imply something similar yeah so like she's gone through extensive rigorous brutal training to do what she does very, well that was cryptea well. potentially well cryptea is um, different right i know i'm just saying that like but both I, I'm, are... I'm talking if she is a one-to-one comparison to a rose think duke of hands <sighs> Like they, they've yeah, gone through fair. a shit ton to mm-hmm. be very, very good at what they do. And Kryptea takes that. it a step further, which I'm still not entirely convinced that she's not Kryptea. Um, well, but she I don't have convince us. I, I don't I I I've known about the Kryptea for if I've known about it from previous books, I don't remember it. So I've known about the Kryptea <laughs> for like six chapters. <laughs> Man, I don't know. It's definitely it. an iron gold. Was it? <laughs> we'll okay. talk about it a little bit more later. Yeah. Sounds good. It's fine. <laughs> you love my memory, don't you? It's so good. It's so good. This is also why we generally do these books in sequence and don't, you know, we're going to try not to do unfinished series in the future for that reason. There's so much um, shit. There's so much stuff to remember. So much to keep straight. So much to keep straight. I totally get it. So moving on from there, of course, how do you feel about Cassius coming back properly now? His appearance on page. It feels good. It feels better later. But in this moment, feels like too long to be gone for five suitcases of helium. It's a lot of helium, though. Yeah, but... And a bunch of soldiers and, like, lieutenants and generals, you know? Like, it was a lot more than... It's true. I just, in the moment, immediately didn't feel great about it. Felt like a snake. Mm -hmm. Feels better given a couple more chapters. But... Okay. The immediate reaction that I had here was... All right, you're here, but but why? Yeah, yeah. So we end the chapter getting a little update on Severo that he's been sold at a syndicate auction. We'll talk more about that specifically in the next chapter, but... All right, one frustrating point of order for this syndicate auction. Uh, how much did our boy fetch? What What's, what's the going rate for a goblin? Yeah, well, definitely. That's definitely interesting. <laughs> I'm sure the price didn't matter to uh, Mr. Apollonius, of whom we'll, of course, talk about in the next chapter. But if he um, bought him, what he we'll have to talk about that in the next chapter. I don't understand what you could possibly be implying. But there is obviously what like what, this. I, is, think, I think I'm very clear in what I'm implying. I don't I don't if no. Apollonius ever actually had Severo. Oh, OK. Yeah, got it, got it, got it, got it. I understand. Yes, yeah. No, that's that's a fair point. I guess I was I was thinking like Severo was clearly actually on auction because oh, yeah. we did see the red eyes. Yeah, that's right. true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, I was like he was absolutely sold. Anyway, that's fine. I understand. I okay. know, I know, he was I sold, but was that. he sold to Apollonius? 
totally a fair question to ask. Dun dun dun. All right, <laughs> chapter four. Darrow, the sordid affair. We open on a hologram of a damaged Severo before witnessing a pre-recorded video from his captor, the Minotaur. We then have a serious conversation about rescuing him with the assorted Imperators, including an interrogation of Cassius by the generals as well. After, Ore agrees and motivates Cassius to join Darrow on the dangerous mission. Thraxa, standing in the way, hands off Badlass before allowing them to depart. You can definitely tell that Darrow has learned his mistake from Wolfgar. And he explicitly mentions it around here. I'm not sure if it was this chapter specifically or like this this part specifically, but he mentions Wolfgar within this section. But even if he hadn't, this chapter is so reminiscent and he seems to be kind of actively trying to avoid any sort of situation like that <laughs> but it goes off a lot smoother than i think uh i was expecting it to so yeah and the mention of wolfgar is a great poll here but the I mean, especially considering that it isn't mentioned, like you're saying, and it does show, again, the change that Dara, that's really these last couple of years and Dark Age in particular is a rot on the man. Um, again, having in my head broken the Reaper and made it so that now we have Darrow again, the the savior. Yeah. But. We also return to a motif we've run through many a time in the series, hanging. Severo is hanging, emaciated, and auctioned off to our favorite gold snob. Darrow has a line here that I really appreciate. Love has seldom caused me physical pain. And it's just this right away moment. He's He sees this moment of confusion in Severo's red eyes, which are his eyes. And so there's this sort of, oh man, that's such a a sensation to be looking in in your own eyes in fear and pain for your friend yeah i ugh, man tough i think to say that love has seldom caused such physical pain is saying a lot because love is fucking constantly causing him physical pain throughout this story <laughs> like, mm -hmm. physical and emotional pain are always being racked on Darrow at like because of love. So um, mm -hmm. this is this is a heavy, heavy weight. He says this much later in the chapter, but he also says my heart is often iron, but it melts for the broken. And at the time he's staring down Callaway and Screwface mm -hmm. kind of making the decision. But this is. I mean, it's melting right here. Very clearly he is breaking down in the same sort of physical pain sense. Yeah. There is this line here, a manly voice purrs, and it's such a such a strong introduction again to the return of Apollonius, just absolutely menacing in all the ways that we've come to expect from this grandiose gold man as he stares off into the distance and eloquently rattles off soliloquies nonstop as though, you know, he can't he, he cannot be shut up, shut up at all. Um, he even, you know, even the tone of what he says is just so menacing. I love just the first line, even they whisper, you are dead. That is how you left me for dead. 
but I have claimed a new domain. And the hanger disappears and he asks the question and then waits for the answer as though they're having a conversation. And that's such a fun note, despite it being a recording. Mm-hmm. Ugh, God, Apollonius. Yeah, there is a bit of hope to it. Um, Darrow is his worthy adversary. There's some mm-hmm. tumultuous points of friendship or strange bedfellows, if you want to call it that, in their history. But for the most part, worthy adversary, I think, is the right way to put it. And despite mm-hmm. Cassius's stag hunt story, I think Darrow is right in his assessment that there is a mutual respect involved between them. I guess not despite, but in spite of. Which, is that synonymous i don't know they evoke the same feelings i guess Mm -hmm. um yeah the recorded message is apple's hope manifest because in my mind if from from apollonius's perspective if darrow is able to slip so easily into the void so could he so he has to believe that the person the one person on equal footing as him Mm -hmm. is still around yeah absolutely and it is it is great and you know even like the moment of like he's obviously doing this whole thing with Severo to tempt him and to bring him in and to lure him out as a way so Mm -hmm. i do want to bring it up since i guess we're we're here and it will i mean were you under the impression that this was legitimately Sepro? did you think that was the case this recording Yes, totally. But later on when they see him and he's like examining the hands and scars, totally thought that was forgeable and not actually Severo. Like totally thought Mm -hmm. it was a trap when he was looking at the CCTV footage. But here, yeah, 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 totally believe this is Severo. Mm -hmm. So it isn't until chapter six that you really felt like that changed. Yeah. Cool. All right. He Darrow also says a little bit later when they're deciding the path forward and what to do, he says love for Severo or hate for the horned one, which is it that draws me like gravity. And it's such a great question to ask. This is an interesting question to ask himself because I don't think it needs to be one or the other. And right off the bat, when he's talking to Ore and Cassius about like going he has five great reasons. Like he enumerated them and like had them off the top of his dome, like five good reasons for going on this mission. And he seems to want simplicity. He wants a binary, like he, he, not a binary, but like a, a single driving force. And it doesn't have to be that, but he wants to know exactly what is the most important thing to him. And he feels like, it's an all or nothing or it has to be an all for all or nothing, but it, like obviously he loves Severo and obviously he hates the Minotaur. Like and both can be drawing him to the same place, but the man that he is needs extremes. So he needs to be one or the other. I, I would argue in this exact moment that the man that he was needed extremes and so that's what he's kind of piecing out here to some degree 
is is it one or the other does it even need to be and so he does have the litany of reasons and like different different paths but i don't think he sorted out that question yet right. i think that he is again reiterated it enough over the course of this episode so far but like he's broken and trying to put himself back together without and figure out reaper why and what he's motivated by persona he recognizes that he wants extremes but he doesn't actually need them is that kind of what they're what you're saying yeah well I'm, I'm not necessarily saying that this is solved right i'm saying that he's questioning it right okay and so like he's questioning which side of which side it is and you know I, i've obviously been a proponent that the reaper was broken during the moment in dark age and i still believe that to be true but just because he's broken doesn't mean he's not there i think that's why he wakes up gleeful ready for combat still i think that's still some of that training or live wire that's inside of him and it's not that he's he's dead necessarily of which i may have even said during this episode but he has been broken and as such darrow needs to change and he's trying to take time to recognize those moments and i think that this is one small flash of that Mm -hmm. makes sense Getting into the rest of the conversation, Screw immediately accuses Cassius, the slayer of Ares, of being a plant of the mad Minotaur of Venus. After a short verbal jousting of why he wouldn't do that, Thrax and Callaway lay down a big part of the why they have trouble. And that's a no small part because of Lysander, who also shot Alexander Arcos in the face. Yeah, yeah. And then Cassius kind of has a bad time with that info. Yeah, that's that's got to be a huge punch to the stomach to Cassius. I wonder if there are still lingering feelings towards Darrow regarding Julian. I'm sure there are. And if but if those somehow connected to this moment in his mind is obviously not even close to a one one to one comparison between like. Lysander killing Alexander and Darrow killing Julian, like they're not the same. They're not parallels in any way, but there's a lot of complicated, like pseudo familial, like found family connections at play here. Mm -hmm. And it, it makes loss and grief and blame a much more tangled web than it was at the inst- at the institute it was pretty fucking simple here and now it's so many different ancient families and usurpers and like galaxy altering timelines and like very very important sort of lifelines that are at play and they all know it so it makes every single connection and influence that much more magnified in in importance. So I'm, I'm sure there's a lot of really, really complicated feelings running through Cassius's mind when he hears about the death of Alexander at the hands of his not-quite-adopted son, but ward to a certain degree. So, yeah heavy yeah i'm sure that there are complicated feelings not only that but add in the fact that cassius isn't even fully used to the republic yet and you get like just this briefest flash of him saying alexander alexander ow and then callaway cuts him off and very quickly addresses it as arcos and like makes it very clear that like he's alexander arcos not ow arcos like that is 
<clears throat> that is the intent as he sort of rushes into that in the moment to fill that space. And that just adds, I think, to the complication, too, is that, like, obviously he still has these sort of habits and the cultural brainwashing going on in him. And he addresses a lot of that a little bit later, I think, in this section, saying that, you know, there, there's a lot to talk about later. But I think that this is a first kind of pinpoint of, you know, him realizing that he's he's got a lot of change left to make. So that's something that I read differently than I heard, if that sure. makes sense. Because I, I read it like that, like Callaway sort of cutting him off and like interrupting the owl part of it. Whereas the way that Tim Gerard Reynolds reads this section, it's heavily answering this like looming question of who's this guy? And then like, he was a fucking Argos. Like, mm -hmm. it it didn't feel like it was laying on the sort of uh, old system of naming and more just like, this is the station that was cut down. Yeah. And, like, it, it's, it's, it's subtle, but it's, a, it's two very different ways of reading that single sentence. And both of them would weigh heavy on Cassius but for very different reasons, I think. I don't think you lose one without the or with the other. No, no right? totally. They sense. can live simultaneously. Right. I, I, don't, Absolutely. I don't think that the context is lost because regardless, I think that it is, even if it's not cutting it off, just the fact that he says it to begin with is like, okay, A, like, you fucking dumbass. Like, we're, we're past that and, like, doesn't understand it. So, yeah, I, I understand. But, yeah. You are you are definitely right. There there are moments of that, of course, and I think either way, it still is powerful to Cassius, and it doesn't fall yeah. on deaf ears for sure. Totally. But speaking of deaf ears, Tarot attempts to give a rousing speech of where they should go and what they should be doing in this moment. We talked about this earlier with Wolfgar, and it falls flat on them immediately, and they're he's unable to move them to join, despite you know giving his best Darrow impression, and. As Callaway puts it, I, I just love it's eloquent, it's simple, but he's not going to go on another one of your suicide missions and the sentiment is shared across this broken crew. Um, this is where that like heart of iron melts for the broken quote comes mm -hmm. in. And like this prose, this style of prose is is what makes me love these books so much, especially on rereads like. I know there's a lot of really unsavory feelings towards Lysander's perspective in Dark Age. And I'm sure in this book too, but I haven't gotten there much yet. But it's written so beautifully and it's performed so flawlessly. I really, I don't think it was a common perspective and I didn't really talk about it much, but I really, really liked the performance that the voice actor for Lysander gave. Mm -hmm. We did talk about that for sure. Okay. But even, even just the battle of Ladon in general mm -hmm. and Tim Gerard Reynolds performance of the emotion or lack thereof that Daryl was experiencing. And I don't even know his name, but the person that was narrating Lysander's chapters, like you could just feel the apathy 
that they had to steal themselves with to go through all of it. Like, I don't know what it is, but this quote, the, the, my heart is often iron, but it melts for the broken just brought me back to the entirety of the battle of, Le, of the Ladon in dark age. And I, I just relived all of that emotional or uh, anti-emotional like reading of all of it. I, I, I don't know where I'm going with this, but I, it just, it felt, it got me fucking hyped. I guess I'm so <laughs> ready to be back in this book series. Oh my God. James Langton was the POV narrator for dark age, um, okay. for Lysander. But yeah, I mean, I, I totally agree with you. I was always, you know, from a, from a meta perspective of the podcast, I was like, am I spoiling PJ right away? Like, am I, does he even, does he even understand like how uniquely incredible this is? I didn't, you know, to begin yeah. with, I, I, I realized it, but the combination of both performance and prose and sort of the, just a lot of it. I mean, to be fair, to be fair to all of the other authors, love all the books that we've read on the show. That's obviously an intent of, of doing it to begin with, but this is at a unique confluence. It's also the only first person perspective story that we've read on the show to begin with. So there's mm -hmm. that, but yeah, that naturally lends itself to more emotional performances mm -hmm. right so cassius and the lesson has a lot of sort of conversation general vibes here what do you make of his sort of return in general and or jumping in and volunteering kind of pushing for this this moment and sort of cassius is a reluctant reaction to join in he also takes two swigs from his uh, whiskey glass so cheers Cheers. The lesson being learning about Alexander or what, what do you mean by uh, the lesson? The lesson that he taught is, is one. So Cassius and Darrow turn to each other and they have a conversation. The conversation that they have is about lessons that had this. He says, before all this, when Olympia was a beacon, my father's star was on the rise. He had time to spend on me. So he decided to take me for my first hunt. Cassius, the I'm glad you're here lesson. truly, but I'm not interested okay. in lessons. Yeah. Okay. It's enlightening and like it's so level headed in a way that we don't often get from old family, old gens, peerless, even, even the ones that are on the side of the Republic, even mm -hmm. the Julii, even Virginia to a certain degree. Like we, we don't get these poignant revelations in no uncertain terms like th this is this is him coming to the realization without or seemingly without the peer pressure of the rising of the rising happening around him like we saw with most of the other peerless that are on Darrow's side so like it, it's refreshingly pure to a certain degree it, it's heavy in in a way that i wasn't expecting yeah i i think that it's it's very clear that like as opposed to all of the other hunting stories that we've ever gotten inside of the story including like nero chasing down an animal on his hands and knees as well as so many of the other the hunts in the story to hear that like cassius's basically was a failure but he still killed it in the end 
despite having a dream of a perfect shot and things like that is is very interesting, I think, especially as that compares. But it is poignant in a way that is very different. And it also then shortly thereafter speaks to his personal sort of change that he's also seeking to make. Right. You know, Cavax instructed him to bring him home. That was kind of the whole thing. And, you know, he's he's kind of pushing the boundaries as much as possible. They have a little bit of a conversation later, but ultimately they agree to go together and we get another we get the same path to the veil quote out of Ore. We get a little bit more in the Cryptea. We get a once more onto the breach as he agrees to do so, which of course is a good old Henry the, um, or the Vaith reference from good old Shakespeare. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. There's, there's a lot that happens inside of this little section and it just goes to show again, how poignant and how powerful of a writer Pierce Brown yeah. is. This section shows, I mean, not unexpectedly that Ore has her own way about her. Mm-hmm. Um, her eagerness to participate in this mission tells me that she either has some drive and reasoning as like, the same drive and reasoning as Darrow does, or feels strongly that she needs to be as close to Darrow as possible. And it could be both. I still don't particularly trust her. The Cryptea are insane. Man, I I don't fucking know. She are describes them as like a, or, or is a it, cult. It's yes. a cult. It, it is all pinks. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. She describes it as a cult driven driven around murder. Yeah. Hmm. I'm not, I'm like, I'm still not convinced she's not like th- this feels so counterintelligent. It might not be and, entirely pinks, but I think they're mostly pinks. Okay. Either way, like her denouncing and like decrying the Cryptea and showing like showing her hand of how she could have killed them if she really wanted to, like, feels like false hope. And, mm-hmm. and man, I'm I'm I don't I don't trust her. I don't trust that she's not Cryptea, but I could totally believe that she's not. I I don't know. I mean, there's the other question of what if she was Cryptea and is no longer active, you know? Sure. Yeah, that's fair. I don't know. Sure. Just just as a reminder, we had talked about the Cryptea previously in Iron Gold because I had to do all this research and go through our backlog, PJ, in order to talk about the show. Mm-hmm. We talked about it previously in Iron Gold. How does it feel to do um, all this background prep <laughs> and then for me to basically pretend that I have no idea that's been two years, so existed. I understand. <laughs> I understand. But I, I, I'm was, confident that if this was a week ago, I still wouldn't remember. <laughs> the Cryptea is is like a... I know, PJ, because we record this episode every week. We record episodes every week, and sometimes you're like, wait, what? And it's like, dude, we were just there. Dude, we talked there for like an hour. <laughs> we we argued yeah. about a dress yeah. for an hour. You're going to tell me you don't yeah. remember a dress existing? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, the Cryptea is an organization originally having its roots in Sparta, naturally. And so uh, generally young Spartan men 
exclusive um, state sponsored child rearing basically to like make them Spartanates or to like win over political favor for families in a way. So all there's a lot of debates around what actually the Cryptea were or were not as there are. There is a lot um, of studying around Spartan culture in general that is generally misattributed by fiction and movies like 300 and other things like that. So Cryptea is one of those things. So it's really not it's really not clear. All that we know is that kids went into it <laughs> and people got, you know, political positions out of it effectively. Kids went in and fucking monsters came out. Yeah. Yep. Anyway, that's that's a little bit just as a reminder of the Cryptea. Obviously, if you're listening to this, you can go back and listen to Iron Gold episode six, and you can hear all about my explanation of the Cryptea that I've already done. So if you're curious. Anyway, Cassius's long return, he takes a moment and after a couple of drinks to have a serious conversation about how he was a coward and how he wishes that he would have come back much sooner. What do you think of Cassius's shift in understanding and honor and finally reflecting back on his time between Morningstar to the end of Iron Gold and his part as a good tyrant? If this is sincere, this is the most rewarding and satisfying proclamation of any of the old gens golds mm-hmm. so far this series, in my my opinion. I'm sure we could find examples of others that are on par. Like if I really like went back looking for them, I could find them, especially like after Darrow's reveal as being a red and like everything shaking out and like lines being drawn and, and alliances. I mean, hell Alexander in the last book. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, Stuff like that. But this is as elegant as we could expect from one of Cassius's speeches, which is to say very fucking elegant and well, spoken and borderline over rehearsed but knowing him it wasn't rehearsed at all which is equally as impressive like i i was truly taken by this admittance and self-reflection and understanding of his station and what it means and what was wrong with it and like i i it's humble, like he, he humbles himself throughout it and it feels very, very nice to see him say it. Yeah, he definitely comes off, I think, as incredibly humble and sincere. And I think that he is truly trying to make amends for his choices that he made in the past and sort of running away. And he, he has this line that I adore, which is honor was made to hide behind, I think, which is fascinating considering he has been the character that has been obsessed with honor with dueling with all of these other things they even bring up the duel and in a moment a little bit earlier before the lesson or right around the lesson where he's like i taught you a lesson when i stabbed you in the gut you can listen to me i gave you your first lesson um i'm not good at dueling and then i think dara comes back with a well i took your arm off at the gala remember that (laughs) (laughs) yeah (laughs) which is you know it's it's clever it's good it's their classic back and forth but for him to break down even if it's behind the you know or empowered by a little bit of liquid courage i i think is a a big deal Mm -hmm. for for cassius in this moment it's admitting something that he was not willing to talk about beforehand right yeah so they make the plan they head out and we get this reveal of Dominus Portobello as this sort of emergency backup plan. And this is 
so funny. Obviously, it's the basis for your cocktail. But what would you make of Dominus Portobello and Screwface's it, little black egg-like bomb? It's so fucking funny. It's great imagery. And to be just stashed away in a pantry like a loose fucking bowling ball is even better. I, I took a picture of it and sent it to you, but I drew a picture of it buckled into a car seat. <laughs> Which is very I, like, how it feels. I imagine in, in, in my head, I imagine some some howler scratched its name into the into the surface of it just with just cavalierly scratching into the exterior surface of a 30 megaton nuclear warhead like feels very on brand for the howlers so nbd yeah yeah it totally does feels very on brand so So we make our way with dominus portobello in tow to the Archimedes, which is what they're going to take, and the commanders themselves are all there, knowing that Darrow is going to put up this little bit of a. He's going to put this up, standing there like a wall, willing to stop Darrow. Thraxa lets him go, and everyone lets him go, obviously, because they they're not going to get in the way. But after the moment of eyeing Bad Last in the previous chapter, her razor, she gives it to him, and so he has a razor that he can go through with, which is. Again, sort of ceremonial carrying of the torch of another of the big Jen's houses as he runs with this razor. But he leaves behind the crew shouting Hail Libertas without the responding cry, which is a terrible, mm-hmm. painful way to to end this chapter and just speaks to truly how broken they are, despite our upbeat nature a couple of times. But yeah. We talked early on about this being a weird energy and this extends that. It's tense, but it's this peaceful, nearly silent protest against him leaving. That unresponded cry at the end hurts, obviously, but it seems to feed into that, maybe not death, but dormancy of the Reaper idea that we've been toying with. Because, I mean, how do you respond to Hail Reaper if the Reaper's gone? So, yeah. Yeah. It's it's anticlimactic as a way to go out but at least he's not going out absconding uh, after killing a beloved (laughs) figurehead of the republic like last time yeah at least this time he's not running away with a corpse on the ground (laughs) yeah yep yep not fleeing definitely has that parallel as well but at the same time like what alternative was there There was the alternative of a, like, coup, but short of that, there's no check. There are no checks and balances here like there was on Luna or on Mars. I can't remember where they were. Luna. It was Luna, yeah. Mm -hmm. But but he had powers that were there to check him, and he flagrantly... (laughs) overcame those checks i have i have a lot of conflicting thoughts about that but i'm not going to get into that right now you and i have talked about it i don't know if we talked about it so much on the show but anyway like he is the commander he is the person in charge here the only person maybe equaling his station at this point right now is char but technically i think is still below him 
in rank. Everyone's still below him. Yeah. Yeah. So, like, what are they going to fucking do? <laughs> you know? Yeah, I, I think it's more like, we're going to take you back. This is the right thing to do. And instead, he, you know, makes the plan of fly away when I give you the signal from what's going on at the docks. And we'll mm-hmm. make it work. And they agree. And they understand. They also understand that there's no stopping Darrow when he wants to do something. So there's equal measure on either side of that. All right. With that, we move into chapter five. Lysander games. So our first POV switch, a good 35 pages into the book here. And we see what Lysander has been up to, namely games to entertain the populace of Mercury and to bend them to his side. But the games have been expensive. We meet his cadre of command components, both old and new, composed of Rhone, Glorostes, Cicero, and Horatia. The chapter ends with hailing Lysander as the Lightbringer by Cicero on the stadium, the Colosseum floor. Yeah, we already talked about it a little bit, the the voice actor change, but like my my first read through, I just did strictly text in my head. Like I imagined that Dark Age voice actor and uh, James LinkedIn. Yeah. Yep. Yep. But to to hear it come out of the mouth of Tim Gerard Reynolds was surprising, but not unwelcome. Yeah, we we, we went into it pretty in depth, so. Yeah, I totally agree. It's uh, it's its own thing, of course, but I definitely had a similar, I mean, I should say I had a not dissimilar reaction to hearing it for the first time being like, whoa, this is just different. But we've talked about that, of course. There's a note here right off the bat that I want to make that you also talked about a little bit earlier, but the Darrow's boot that burned his eye was not his boot. It was never his boot specifically did it it was a random down star shell that did the damage in dark age there were a couple that fell from the sky and one that landed and then sputtered on basically to burn his face um and the fact that he's deluding and lying to himself as well as to others as we hear later from valeria building up his own legend in his mind and from everyone else is a whole fucking thing it's working i'm curious yeah, it's if effective were, like if if he knows that he's lying to himself or lying to everybody else or if he genuinely believes like if it's a lie that he's told himself so often and and that war is such a blur that he genuinely believes that this scar is from darrow i mean i think that that is the case but i think that that's just delusion over time right Mm -hmm. like that is i don't think i don't think i would even pin that on the war i think that he just like it, it lies memories are so easily tainted and lies can become convenient memories like that you know co- to compartmentalize or shrink down something and simplify it and so i see that specifically in this moment yeah small note but nonetheless important and it comes up later with valeria again so but glorostes and roan make for an interesting set of lieutenants at the side of lysander here flanking as advisors during these games and over the last several months what do you make of the pair and their bickering as well as the new edition of lysander's whisper kyber as long as glorostes and roan stay relatively balanced i think It'll benefit Lysander to have these sort of quarreling lieutenants. Um, They each have a unique track record and experience and expertise and background. Um, And if he's able to weigh them both properly, I think he's got a great set of advisors in them. 
Kyber, I don't, I don't really know a whole lot of what to think. It's going to be fun to watch going forward. Is it her? Kyber? Kyber, her. Yep, her. Okay. Mm-hmm. But yeah, really, really not, not a whole lot of understanding of what to make of her yet, but very, very intrigued. Yeah, I mean, with Kyber, really, I mean, she's a whisper. She's silent at this point. We haven't really heard anything from her outside of seeing her in a bunch of different moments and following around and making Glorostes uncomfortable as though someone else could be listening in, although it seems as though that's probably not the the case by any stretch. All right. Morningstar being renamed Lightbringer. You know, this is bound to be an absolute field day for metaphor. It's impossible not to do so for me. I feel like I'm going to hang on to some of that because we've talked a lot about these things and maybe we need to wait to see where this blooms. But, you know, there's there's something obvious that we've had big, long conversations about before with the comparisons of titles and the logic of picking Lightbringer as mm-hmm. this sixth book title um, in juxtaposition against the original trilogy with Morningstar. Yeah, I'm going to bring it up. The one that I like comes to mind <laughs> for me right away. These are both traditionally names for Lucifer, correct? Yes. Yep. Yeah. So like that's the immediate comparison, which I find interesting that they're both book titles and and changing the name of the ship, but not really changing the name of the ship. But in context, like Selene is the light bringer is not quite the same as the obsidian morning star symbolism. But, you know, for us, it's apt or it's, it's a connection. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's an obvious comparison, right? Like morning star Lightbringer are immediate in, in terms of the sort of Christian vernacular, especially as translated from, Hebrew and there is a lot going on here but I think to analyze this too soon is also to do it the justice of lacking the post analysis of having the full like text underneath us to some degree or Mm -hmm. some of it but it's needless to say that obviously I mean we don't need to reach that far to also point out that Lysander is the descendant of the Lightbringer and obviously this book is titled Lightbringer and so there are definitely immediate comparisons to be made between lucifer so we are and morning star in general and darrow's rise and success so there's also like third installment of the trilogy being the the namesake morning star being the third book lightbringer being oh yeah yeah Yeah. yeah. oh entirely that's that's a very intentional parallel (laughs) there's there's no way that wasn't intended the only part that seems to have been out of pierce brown's control was turning lightbringer into two words as opposed to one (laughs) well there's that (laughs) on the the, the book title the kerning on the spine but yeah. you know that's different yeah. <laughs> that's, that's something that's that a different... i'll bring up because i know it's a sore spot for a lot of people we'll, we'll talk about it later but <laughs> very excited for the alternate uh, book covers for that reason alone mm. <laughs> for that reason alone all right so moving on to glorossi's conversation in the elevator about the path that lysander is on what do you think what do you think of the position that Lysander has left himself in being sort of unable to secure additional loans or funds, you know, having chosen predominantly an army of greys? 
over sort of the institutes and restarting the institutes of gold. What do you think of all of these different decisions that have led to Lysander's current position over the last eight months? I truly and genuinely believe that Lysander is playing the long game and understands all of the shortcomings in the short term that he's brought upon himself. He seems to understand that this game that he's in is one that requires himself to be positioned in a very, very specific, particular way in order to achieve the power that he craves. This makes him very, very, very dangerous, I think. He's playing the same game that he's playing the same game that the Jackal was playing with more patience on it exponentially larger scale and we're seeing the the, we're we're still seeing the nascent stage of this game we're still seeing the soft underbelly of this game that he's that he's forging so he is very intelligently positioning himself for power later in a way that is vulnerable and risky and to conventional wisdom seems folly and frivolous but he knows what he's doing truly could not agree more it it seems as though he he is very aware of the choices that he's making although perhaps without the i should say i think he's aware i think that he is playing a long game but i think that he is also a little foolhardy right like he's a little, he he believes that every choice that he is making is the correct one. And he even says within, within the chapter, without power, everything else is good intentions. And while true and good and well, as Lysander evaluates his position of power and really, really focused in, I mean, I think even later when he has a conversation with either Valeria or Horatia, he brings it up again of like, what's your, what's your desire? And he says power you know power is my desire which is a big change from where he was at before where he was unwilling to admit that to himself but yeah i don't know i'm i'm kind of winding myself in a circle here as i'm trying to talk to your point but i i think that he he is he sees larger scale but he thinks and he does he does see the long term but i think he's acting in the short term i don't think he is just based on his conversation later on talking about the the criticisms that these games won't buy him power but his response is that like no but it'll kind of open the door to answer to to be able to ask those questions of what is needed like he he understands that even though what he's doing isn't the direct line to the power that he's seeking, it is the line to the door knocker of the question that he's seeking. You, you, like he, he seems do, to understand, understand yeah. that like this is a multi-step process in order to get juxtaposed in just the right way that he needs to be in order to seize like the actual ultimate power that he's seeking. Definitely something there. I don't want to completely disembark from it, but he also 
he's immediately confronted with the fact of like it's better to be broke and with an army than broke and popular right and and mm. i think that that's really the the sort of crux that he finds himself on and that's why i say that i think he's he's acting he is planning for the long term but acting in the short term is i don't think he realizes that he doesn't he's only got so much runway and that his name only stretches so far and that's why i think this denial of the loan you know is a bigger deal than he's making it out to be and so he's kind of denying that anything's going to change when very clearly it's going to change that that's all that i'm trying to get to i think that he is thinking long term but i think that he isn't necessarily admitting holistically you know that's fair that there are other complications on the path what do you think about lysander working out that it probably wasn't darrow who poisoned calendora i wouldn't have believed for a second that this kid who spent his entire youth studying the commanders and the institute students and all of the political and military leaders uh, fucking everybody that his grandmother had files on and their mm-hmm. like their habits and like he he knew everything about everybody and i don't think there's any realm of possibility where he would be so naive to just believe whatever story he was told about the mm-hmm. the killing of Calendora at like I, I would have been really really disappointed in him if he had actually genuinely believed that Darrow poisoned her um, Lysander sucks <laughs> but he sucks because he's really fucking good at what he's doing mm-hmm. so that he does he is very good at what he's doing and that's in part you know because of these things and so i would agree with you i was very happy to see this revelation and not see him slip into some sort of delusion in which he believed that darrow was the was the poisoner this felt very much more in line with character and then he works out you know kind of the position of power that he needs to take against atalantia his betrothed yeah. even yeah it would have been semi believable for him to believe it if it was in some parallel universe where Octavia is still around and she's still pulling the strings, if she was mm-hmm. the one feeding him that information, she would have crafted it better, first of all. Right. But I could, that's the only situation in which I would believe that he would believe that something out of character was happening. Yeah. And as though Atalantia, if it wasn't her wouldn't have been like at her bedside probably considering there was a point at which they were friends like there's there's mm-hmm. there are a lot of other components to that too where it's Tons. like atalantia you're not covering your tracks babe yeah yeah i did mention this but i was curious did you have anything on the the grays and the decision to raise a predominantly gray army versus the institute training with all the golds this is a great idea on his part to really heavily invest in the primary force for like controlling the general population like really really heavily investing in the grays means solidifying the the masses under his control when it comes time to mm-hmm. like seize ultimate power smart move totally agree yeah all right 
So we move on to Horatia Alvotum. What do you make of this relative newcomer to the political lot of Lysander, as well as the role she might play in the political block of the 200? Who is Horatia again? Because I, I think I can use them in my head. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Horatia is the, and very easy to do because I actually had even at this point as well, as I was rereading, I was like, wait, who's who? So I do not blame you in the slightest. Horatia is Cicero's sister of whom is also the basically the financier of or financer of and like record book keeper administrator of everything that Lysander is doing, but is predominantly focused on rebuilding the Lightbringer in addition to managing other projects for Lysander because of his undoubtedly because of his proximity to Cicero as friends since the Ladon. Okay. And she's not in the same position as Pytha is, correct? Where Pytha and like Lysander describes Pytha's fate as intertwined with his because she's positioned to be the commander of this ship and could be one of the greatest commanders of all time if it comes off, but if or if, if it takes off, but if not, she's a laughing laughingstock along with him. And I don't think yeah, Horatia Ho- is also Horatia a part is- of that. She's a part of it, but no, she's she, not as strictly intertwined as Pytha no, is. No, no, she is She is she the is. one that's strictly intertwined. Yeah. Okay, okay. It will not okay. be Pytha's fault that it doesn't go off. It will be Horatia and Lysander's fault if it doesn't work. Pytha will okay. become the captain and as such. Yeah. You know, yeah. Okay. But it is Horatia of whom is gambling her reputation. I mean. On this moment. Based on what every like everything that is being presented, she seems to be making a pretty safe bet. And despite having the taste of freedom under the rule of the Republic, the people here have not felt supported by the, the by the previous mm-hmm. government. So they are embracing Lysander and the society. It seems so to put your weight behind the symbolic incarnate second coming of the like pseudo god of the conquering is probably a pretty safe bet. (laughs) (laughs) Provided, you know, provided it works. So I don't I don't have a whole lot to say beyond that on her still in my head intertwined entirely with uh valeria (laughs) let's switch and talk about valeria what do you think about valeria and her opinion on reconstructing the lightbringer and their mutual desire for their inheritances it's also where he says he has the brief conversation about power as well yeah and she's more seductive and whatnot what do you think about valeria i mean as, as i mentioned the inheritance thing makes me feel even more that Lysander is truly playing the long game. He recognizes entirely what Atalantia should have done and is is seemingly staying very, very quiet about it. And forging this friendship with Valyria seems like the beginning of a very, very quiet coup against his betrothed <laughs> to a certain degree. But that said, Valyria exemplifies that conventional wisdom that we've come to know about the ruling peerless elite of the pre-rising society 
Um, she mm-hmm. possesses the drive for power, but it is selfish and hedonistic in nature. So despite being on Lysander's side going forward, she is going to represent the poison that Lysander is going to want to root out and flush out because it is the hubris within the golds that allowed the rising to take root in the first place. So she's a stepping stone. She is a necessary companion and ally, I guess. Sure. Like, yep. uh, like reluctantly necessary, but I think ultimately will be turned against when the time comes. Sounds good. Valeria also is, is a record in Latin. Valere is the root of to be strong. So mm-hmm. just as a bonus note, she also says a line here that I was curious about your thoughts. She says about Roan, and maybe this could just be considered as general colorism, of course, but shouldn't let the dog sit at your table, Lysander. They'll eat the food off of your plate. I think, I mean, that feeds into that pre-rising conventional gold wisdom of separation and subjugation and of the lower colors yeah absolutely yeah okay so we're interrupted as they're having this conversation by tharsis of whom walks over from the box that they're in watching over all of this stuff and stumbles over drunkenly for the first time in a long while what part do you think that he has to play in this whole theater of, of Lysander's. Tharsis is Tactus and Apollonius's brother, right? Yeah, but Tactus is dead, and I never yeah. liked Tactus anyway, so, uh, yeah. But, like, she was the one that was, like, <laughs> yeah. living yes. in Apollonius's house and partying and, like, living it up while Apollonius was in deep grave. Yeah. Yes. Yep. So, mm-hmm. his pixie ass... Yeah, uh, I think I think is going to be used in a way and and whispered sweet nothings and promised a way to like regain that station. I don't know exactly how, but I, I think he'll be promised wealth and leisure for some sort of betrayal against his family or against his other allies or something. But I, I think he'll be in some plan with a promise that won't have to be fulfilled because he'll be swallowed up by the consequences of whatever deal he strikes. Okay. That's vague. All right. I know, but I think I think he'll go down in a search for a return to the the good life that he was living before Apollonius came home. Cool. I'm turning that into a prediction for everyone listening at home because I think that it kind of is in a way by the by its very nature. So, all right. I, I think Tharsis here, especially as he exemplifies, just reminds me of a like classical depiction of like a hedonistic Greek, right? Like he just has mm-hmm. that sort of that vibe from media in this very moment as he shows up and is immediately like, I can't tell if she wants to fuck me or if like you want to get out of my face or something like that. And it's just like, okay, but like chill the fuck out. <laughs> Drunk bitch. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Absolutely. 
with that, we get Cicero down in the Colosseum, of course, hysterical, just showing up when he's not supposed to be. Horatio's back. And I, I just kind of love this man. But then he he shouts and dedicates the race of the games. And I've got to read it, of course, because it's a perfect way for the Lysander chapter to end. I dedicate this race to the savior of Heliopolis, the steward of Mercury, the image of Selenius, the last of his line, Lysander, the light bringer. And got to respect him. You got to respect him for that. But I like this is the one thing that I couldn't help but like focus on for some reason because he Lysander jumps down from the box. He's not in the like royal suite that he was supposed to be in. He's just in with the grays. This is a stadium with a quarter million people in it. Mm -hmm. There's so many fucking people. That's so Mm -hmm. many people. And Cicero's just like, yep, there's my dude. And like professes among the people to him. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I'm not going to say it like, took me out of it but i'm like "Mm, i don't know i don't know if you'd really find lysander like that so suddenly well but it's placed right that's the other side of this right so like everyone is shocked in the crowd by his descent into the mid colors um as i make my way amongst the mid colors not to sit with my own men but to honor the votum legions cicero's grays receive me with the hero's welcome roan paid their centurions for as i place my bet with the roving bookie cicero guides his chariot past and lifts his hand in formal salute to me his voice aided by some unseen microphone booms out of the arena so fucking okay, Lysander okay. knew so that he was, was going to be down it there. was it this was, was totally all staged, staged. Yeah. okay yep mm-hmm. good point yeah <laughs> yeah all that staged was, that was choreographed mm-hmm. yeah the entire time yeah this is all this is all theater as everyone else has been so wrapped to point out just a bunch of games do you do you think given that lysander actually didn't know that cicero was competing no, I think he a hundred percent knew. I think he's okay. putting on a game face for everyone else around, being like shocked. I thought some he's of it obviously was the crowd not favorite. out loud for some reason. Like I, I thought some of it was not act like it was internal monologue of him being upset with him for actually competing. But I might be no, wrong. No, he's not. No, it's it's definitely not. It's external. He didn't. Tell me okay. he's not, is what he says. He's being dramatic and he just fucking is. Okay, and he's also riding blood of the empire, Lysander's horse. So like sun blood. So like, yeah. you know, oh blood of empire. Yeah. yeah, that's a good name for a horse. It's a great name for a horse. <laughs> anyway, I digress. The point being, uh, love Cicero. Lysander's a little punk of whom is having a tough time. I think uh, earning respect, which is why he's paying for it. Mm-hmm. So with that we move into our final chapter of the week chapter six darrow mortal concerns under the watchful gaze of selenius and the carthiae statues ore cassius and darrow slip into the dockyards of venus noted as the greatest structure ever built by mankind they quickly find themselves a guide in the form of a green to help them navigate to severo but are found out almost immediately they still make their way to severo despite the interference and discover it to be a carefully laid trap by the Minotaur. What? A trap? In these books? 
Never. They would never do a trap. Don't There's tell no traps. So don't, don't tell, tell me it could so. be. I can't wait for June to show back up and just be, you know, rescued from some somewhere to be a cook again. You know, I don't know. That's what we need. Reverse right trap. More abductions. R- reverse yeah. trap. Yeah. You know, good. So within this chapter, it felt like a prompt to go look something up. And I didn't do it because I knew I could just ask you. The this this junkyard is named for the Greek god of the forge. But yeah. it, he is not titled within this chapter. Well, actually he is. They mention it before they mention that he's the Greek god. Oh, rather okay. the Roman god. But Roman Vulcan. God. Vulcan. Vulcan. Okay. Mm-hmm. I yeah. don't remember that being mentioned. So thank you. Cool. Yeah. Sounds Vulcan good. or Hephaestus? I think I think Hephaestus is the same god. But yeah, greedy gods taking multiple names. Just name well, yourself once. Really, it's the Romans needing to rename them because they wanted to, you know, appropriate a culture. No, but these are gods. They, gods also, I guess they do take. If they really names, wanted to, but... they could tell the Romans to call call me by the Greek name. But they don't, so clearly they want to be named the same thing. Well, it's also they want, they want the multiple Greek. names. You're fired. Okay, so <laughs> I personally, on, on just a note for the structure of our show, I, I had a really long debate on whether or not to include this chapter versus leaving us on like two kind of separate cliffhangers of like taking off and, you know, whatnot. Mm-hmm. But I think that this has just as good of a cliffhanger if not better and we also get just that smallest bit of classic red rising action that makes it feel like we're back baby yeah it does so i i had to I, include it i like that you included this despite the trap really fucking sucking it kind of feels good for cassius to be in it with darrow like just keep swimming you know like it, it feels as we have returned to form so too have Darrow and Cassius being stuck in a trap. This this is kind of jumping immediately to the end of this, but it does remind me immediately of them being stuck in the lock together. Yeah, that, um, that's what I mean by just keep yeah. swimming or yeah, just keep yeah, treading yeah, water. Yeah, or what, what what was it? What was the phrase from? Yeah, I think it was just. I think it was just keep treading, tread, tread, tread. Yeah, I think it was just keep swimming because that's Finding Nemo. But maybe that it is was. that is Finding Nemo. <laughs> but yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah it's it's great it's very reminiscent of that first book in all of those different moments we've even gotten flashes of the story from the very first novel back inside of this in in their own parts so it absolutely tracks it's also hard to not absolutely love the moments that are shared aboard the archimedes itself on the way there both cassius remarking about the bankrupting of the republic building these ships as that as that joke in order to like outfit the morning star with the same sort of shells that he's seeing everywhere or or bits about being a more capable pilot and like not actually needing cassius's training i think all of those like little moments of humor are so good throughout this little section yeah throughout this i'm more and more intrigued by ore she openly admits that she's here for more than just retrieving severo but doesn't feel the need to divulge that information so like i still don't quite trust her but i so very much love her character already and i guess that's the whole fucking point isn't it Mm -hmm. 
<laughs> Indeed. <laughs> so, yeah, I'm entranced and drawn in by Ore's siren song. By the siren song? Yeah, I was about to say. Mm-hmm. Uh, she also has so many clever lines that are just so carefully and tactfully placed everywhere. Um, it, she's a she's a hetero cortesian, and so naturally that makes sense. But she has this line when they're talking about the piloting, and she says, "I'm a pink. I humor everyone," and that's just like so. Oh, it's so good. It's so mm-hmm. like oh, pinks are like really good at reading people, aren't they? Fuck. <laughs> Shit. Shit. Fuck. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. I get it. Yeah. Love that. Love that about her. So the pair get in. I don't think it's actually a spit tube, but it might be a spit tube where they're launched out of the Archimedes and there's this nut to butt moment (laughs) as opposed to (laughs) launching old styles side by side, which is just such a, a a great callback just to the series in general and some of the jokes that we've had. But then in addition to have Cassius be like, what? No, you get on my back. And he's like, absolutely not. You, (laughs) you get on my back. This is Howler protocol, whatever. And it's just perfect. It just reminds immediately again of them being kids running off and fetching the flag. Yeah, it it really does feel great. And even if it's just fleeting, I love this duo. And I, What do you mean even if it's just fleeting? If this is like the last that we get of them being a duo and being like in the thick of it together, like mm. – if this is Cassius setting him up for being in the trap and he's not actually stuck in the trap with him. I don't know. Uh, there, there are, there are theories. Myriad theories running around, around in my brain. Hmm. We'll see. So Darrow and Cassius quickly make their way into the facility and Cassius, not even thinking about the gravity turns a green into a limp wet towel. <laughs> <laughs> what you make of the the greens like delirium room and revelries and this whole concept of how they unwind in addition to Darrow's reaction to to Cassius. I mean, what they call it delirium arcades or something like that. Yeah, delirium arcade. Yep. Yeah. It feels so dystopian and cyberpunk. Mm-hmm. But I guess it's really on brand for greens. Like I wouldn't expect yeah. anything different within the society or the syndicate or whatever system we technically find ourselves within right now. Like I know the Minotaur is a part, but kind of separate from the society, but there are connections to this. I don't fucking know. I don't know. This also feels kind of propped up in some twisted way. Like this is a theater being presented to Darrow. I'm not quite equipped to explain why I feel that way. I, I'm not, I don't need like a full on why, but can I ask, do you think that this was like a setup for Darrow specifically? Yeah. Or, hmm. I see this as a twisted manipulation. That's the part of your sentence that I agree with, but I think it's more on the greens, right? Because 50% of them or over more than 50% of them are locking themselves into like pleasure sims. And I think that's to numb themselves to the reality of what their regular job is, right? That's and that's like, what I mean. I that's guess. nefarious, but I don't it, think it, that it's no, 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 no. I, I, no, I, I think, I think this entire 
situation that Darrow has mm-hmm. plopped himself into was hand created for him. And Got it. the Minotaur needed a lot of greens to do a lot of shit that they wouldn't have wanted to do. So he created these arcades for them as a pacifying measure. Like, I, I sure. don't think the okay. arcades are for totally. Darrow. I think, I think the fact that these arcades are so numerous and populated scream to me that it's outside of the normal sort of interactions of society for these people like i think it is does that make sense i do Um, i do understand but i think that this is the normal um for greens and and that would be i mean that could be too yeah like we we haven't seen a whole lot of greens i mean the, the moment that we get with greens and kind of the first taste of this arcade is all the way back in red rising i believe in which he pitches a green man on the outside pitches darrow on the idea of experiencing i think menace morgul or something like that it's a lord of the rings bit but in an arcade basically and and like sinking in mm-hmm. and we get so, some in like uh, sir fungal one of the two yeah, yeah, yeah. But we, we also get some, I think, in Iron Gold, in Afrin's perspective. Uh, with we some definitely do. I'm, yeah. I'm not saying that we don't get greens, yeah, but yeah. I don't think we get the same degree. But it's all, like, it's all pretty VR-focused, so I get it. I get what you're saying. Yeah, I, I'm trying to explain that I think that this is a, a societal manipulation versus even an iron gold it's it's not those aren't there those sort of like it would be very similar to like the dens that the pinks are in right it'd be the same Mm -hmm. kind of thing but this would be specifically for greens that's what i'm trying to get to yeah okay i could i could buy into that but my and it's it's just my control mechanism my immediate being not super exposed to it I guess my immediate reaction was, hmm, this feels fishy. And the fact that Darrow commented on it mm-hmm. and commented on the numerous and, and po- how, how populated these arcades were. And for him yeah. to comment on it, would I would assume he'd understand how society functions and it would be remarkable to remark on it. But uh, right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 23 Delirium Arcades. Yeah, definitely a lot, but likely because they're in charge or help guide the process of building beyond just like the war side of the other the other part that we hear about. So with that, move. Did you have any notes on, on Darrow and Cassius's sort of morality moment that happens between the pair of them as Cassius accidentally turns the man into a wet towel and Darrow eventually very intentionally squeezes the man and pops him like a blister? I mean, it's muscle memory, right? <laughs> I, don't, I don't think that's it. I mean, I'll at the very least give Cassius like a little bit because he actually is like apologetic. And on the other side, Darrow also deserves his own space because that person was fucking disgusting and awful. Yeah. I think either way, they're, yeah, they're, they're both good. I was just curious if you had a There's something to reckon with there, I'm sure. But you know what? I'm okay with it right now. Sure. <laughs> I just, yeah, I just want to be in this book. <laughs> Mm-hmm. It's fair. <laughs> All right. 
Our final thing to talk about, of course, is uh, that Darrow and Cassius are led by this green of whom is wrapped around the head with or wrapped around the neck with bad lass on like basically a leash. Um, keeping lookout, they continue to make their way through the prisoners. They eventually find their way to Severo using the green and Darrow and Cassius quickly find themselves surrounded, but still manage to break into Severo's cell before they discover that it's actually a carefully laid trap by the Minotaur. The gravity kicks on and a gravity well pulls them down to the ground, ensnaring them before we hear the voice of the Minotaur over the comms say, Darrow, Would you Darrow, like to play a game? <laughs> Truly, you are divine, for you've answered my prayers. Welcome to the dockyards of the Minotaur. Welcome to your doom. Yeah. Yeah. Fucking jigsaw, man. Yeah. Yeah, basically. <laughs> I would be horrified for Darrow if I wasn't so fucking excited for the return of our big bad bovine bedfellow. <laughs> <laughs> nice. I'm very excited for a for you to read next week but did you have any thoughts on the trap itself you did you made mention of and i i had this segue us in the moment but you made mention mm-hmm. of the feelings around severo so what do you think yeah so genuinely i believe that the minotaur has severo mm-hmm. i think he does because i think he would need to in order to create such a believable simulacrum of Severo. Okay. With the, with the scars and the tattoos and everything. Like he went through a lot of particulars to, to get that right. So I think he genuinely does have Severo and bought him at, at, at auction. But as soon as Darrow was scrutinizing the the visible sort of hallmarks of what makes Severo Severo when you can't see mm-hmm. his face. I'm like, yeah, it's not fucking Severo. <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. but to make such a, a good approximation of Severo, I think you need to have him in his possession. So I think he's here somewhere. All right. And cool. I I don't think... Like maybe maybe it's stupid to feel this way, but I feel like Apollonius would feel like it'd be cheap to be a pure trick. Like I think I think he would need for his own sake to actually have the quarry in his possession and attainable in order to feel like it was a fair trap. It's fair. That makes sense. Mm. I'm in, man. Yeah, I'm fully, fully there. All right. I want to hear if you have any closing thoughts, anything going on, anything rattling around the old noggin. I was not expecting to come into this abandoning that dark, apathetic character of the Reaper that we Mm -hmm. really got intimately close to in Dark Age. But the fact that we don't have him so tangibly right here is kind of exciting. And there's a, there is something different in the, mm, in the air, in the, in the air, but there is a lightness present 
for some reason, it feels more like the first trilogy for somehow in a good way. I'm, I'm very, very optimistic about what the rest of the book will bring. I'm sure there will be darkness and I am not shying away from it. I'm excited for it. I'm sure there will be very, very complicated moral questions that we'll have to talk for a lot of time about and cut down to a five minute back and forth. I, I, I'm so fucking pumped for this book. Well, the good news for you is that you get to read more of it next week. <laughs> Can you nom, nom, I know. Nom, 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 nom. So next week we are going to be reading chapters seven through 11 chapters, seven through 11. So that's where we're going to leave you for this week. Thank you. As always, to Tim and Andrew for helping us keep the show's lights on. Check out the show notes. You'll find links to our schedule, our Patreon, patreon.com forward slash words and whiskey. Previous episodes, websites, social media accounts, everything all in one very easy, nice, convenient location. Yeah, and beyond that, make sure that you leave us a five-star review only. If you don't leave us a five-star review only, I will throw a fake games in your honor, but make sure that you get run over by Blood of Empire. He's a big horse. Beyond that, make sure that you find us on Words Whiskey Pod on Twitter, Instagram, Reddit, Words and Whiskey Show at gmail.com, patreon.com forward slash words and whiskey, and our t-shirts. Mm, T-Public. Uh <laughs> Thank you so much for for joining us, for following along all of these various years as we've gone through a couple of years, PJ. I just said years. But thank you so much for for doing this with us for so long and for coming back to us now, too, for those of you of whom are returning for this journey through Lightbringer. I have recorded this podcast at six different homes. This is episode 170. <laughs> 170 that's fucking nuts that is fucking nuts leave you with that